You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children and still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders and under our beds and in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty that's dark. Pretty dark. We gather here today <laughs> to end our series on Brave Little Toaster, potentially. Yeah. And I've just had, I've had endings on the brain this weekend. Oh, are you thinking what I'm thinking about? Yeah, for sure. Are you sad too? Because not only did the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel series finale uh, release this weekend, mm-hmm. but Succession also ended this weekend. So all of the TV that I look forward to each week has come to an abrupt and crushing <laughs> halt. <laughs> All at once. All at one time. And I'm just feeling that void. Yeah. Then Brave Little Toaster is just coming along and like ripping that black (laughs) hole of existential feelings open. I was about to say, I'm so glad that we have something light and cheerful to (laughs) talk about today. To make up for what what a sad weekend we've had around these parts. Yeah, this is a this was a tough one. Yeah, but we have had one good thing. Um, we got our first bit of fan art. Oh yeah, we totally did. Sally St. Rose. You can check it out on our Instagram. We appreciate that so much. If you ever have it cross your mind just to to make fan art while you listen or in general, we love it. Yeah, we want all of it. Send it our way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please cheer us up. <laughs> <laughs> Please cheer us up. Help us. <laughs> also, I broke down and bought a copy. Of the Brave Little Toaster. Of course you did. It's not here yet. Oh my God, Christian. I bought it too late. Taurus ass. I found a copy that's cheaper than the ones I found before. Wow. So you're going to have the real thing soon. But, you know, I'll probably get it like tomorrow. So it won't count. It still counts. Like you said, my name's Christian. Oh, yes. My name's Kaylin. And this is That's Pretty Dark. And let's just plug in and turn this thing on. Yeah, we all know what we're doing here. We all know what we signed up for. So we had some really amazing feedback from part one. Mm -hmm. And really even before... We started part one. As soon as we were like posting about it on our, our Instagram, people were like yeah. really excited. I'm telling about you, this. you are never alone, listener. This never is this alone. one has really lit up the phone lines. That's right. As they would say in the old radio days. And lots of people say that this movie messed them up or has haunted them for years, but they still remember it as being one of their favorites. Mm-hmm. So if this is your first time joining us here and are wondering what we're all about, it's this exact thing. Mm-hmm. Going back to these things from our childhoods that's left strong impressions or you know, scars, maybe, um, and discovering how and why they existed and reevaluating what they mean to us through a matured lens. So if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome. It's dark out there, but it's safe in here with us. And for those of you who know the drill, as we said in part one, this one's a real doozy. Doozy doesn't even cover it. Doesn't even cover (laughs) it. So fair warning to all, although we'll have our usual amount of fun, hopefully, uh, we will be openly discussing undertones of depression, mm-hmm. death, and suicide. Yep, definitely need to disclaim that. Yeah, we don't usually give disclaimers like this up top. But like you said in part one, Kaylin, this is our most existential topic we've covered, mm-hmm. even more than Pinocchio. And I'd venture to say that it might be for some time yeah. the most existential. If you're struggling or if you're suffering, you are not alone. And Mm-mm. there are resources and you are valuable. And important. That's right. Even if this movie might make you lean into the thoughts that you're worthless. We promise you <laughs> no, <not. laughs> no, no, no. We're gonna to we're gonna discredit all those opinions today. <laughs> so the main themes in this movie, other than the uh, depression, death, and suicide, are <laughs> abandonment, 
loneliness, and unfulfillment. Mm -hmm. And similar to Ferngoli with his anti-pollution and anti-deforestation message, there's a strong message here of planned obsolescence and Mm anti-consumerism. But it all goes much deeper than that. These sentiments are employed to convey the deeper allegory of our societal measures of the value of individual human beings, contingent upon their ability to not only serve that society, but also to be accepted and adored by that society. Mm. Thanks to things like beauty, talent, wealth, convenience, etc. Wow. And as we'll see from this film, that too far often, even an appliance's ability, aka a human's ability, to serve or contribute doesn't mean it will be embraced by society. Even if it, he, she, they can work, they might still be rejected due to things like old age, disability, physical appearance, gender identity, sexual orientation, etc., 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 to infinity and beyond. It really couldn't be more on topic for the social climate of today. Absolutely. And I can just feel our soapboxes. Can't you feel it? Oh, just I can the just urge to just grab onto a soapbox and clean lift yourself soap up beneath my feet. <laughs> yeah. So these are just things to keep in mind as you watch this movie or listen to this series uh, tonight. We're not going to like harp on those things. I do talk about them again, and I'm sure you do too, Caitlin. But mm-hmm. um, you know. They're just things to keep in mind. Uh, and they're important. I mean, it's... And they're important. They were, they were important when the film was made, and they're important now. So we open on a very, uh, in my opinion, Bambi-esque shot of a cabin in the woods. Yep. The crickets alert us to an early morning, and as we enter through the dilapidated window with its broken shutters, we see that the house is pretty much kept in nearly perfect order. This is because although the house has been abandoned by the humans who own it, The place is inhabited by sentient appliances, who still perform their daily duties. The tearjerker is that they keep these things tidy, in the hope that their master will finally come home to them, and they want it to be nice for when he does. Pick me, choose me, love me. (laughs) But according to Kirby, the vacuum cleaner of course, the master has been gone for 2,000 days. That's about five and a half years. But in the shots of Rob as a kid, he seems younger than 12 to me. Oh, uh, yeah. I would so, say so that might be like an underestimation. <laughs> might be more like 3,000 days. We can't trust our vacuum cleaners to do math. No, no, no. It's a household appliance. And only one of them can read. You so. can't even trust me to do math. Are you kidding? You can't even trust me to clean my floors with a vacuum. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to say, I might even be less reliable than a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and I'll tell you about the Kirby in a second. One of the more reliable vacuum cleaners out there. Mm-hmm. So this whole opening act is rife with commentary of an assortment of brutal realities. The radio is reporting the news, which consists of escaped zoo animals, domestic abuse, big game hunting, and storming the beaches of Normandy, where thousands of people died. Also, Tutti Frutti. Yeah, that was in there. As they're cleaning up. Like, why? What? Um, (laughs) Because it's an upbeat song. It makes you feel good. It's such an upbeat song. So you start off thinking, okay, everybody clean up. Everybody do your share. Barney, cleaning is fun. Tutti Frutti. Yeah. Which is in every other, like, 90s thing, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it just all comes crashing down so quickly. Quiet. It's the blanket. They think they hear a car, and in a heartbreaking attempt to climb into the attic to see if it's their master returning home, the Blanket, named Blanky, is so emotionally distraught, he has a full-blown hallucination. And when the dream is shattered, 
He sobs uncontrollably. And it's not humorous, like crying no. characters usually are in, in these kinds of films. It actually feels like it hurts, mm-hmm. like it's supposed to hurt. Yes, it's, yeah, it's more than it feels like it hurts. It feels like it's supposed to hurt. Right. I don't like to hear crying in films and anything. Like, it's something that undoes me very quickly, like emotionally. And mm-hmm. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, when humans hear that sound, it's distressing. It is distressing. And they leaned in. Because it's a, it's a distress call, right? Exactly. Of the human. Exactly. Somebody's in trouble. Mm-hmm. And they really leaned into that. Yeah. And I agree. That daydream. Brutal. All the visuals conveyed that it was supposed to feel happy. Mm-hmm. And even as a young, young child watching it, I did not feel happy. No. You knew that you shouldn't, for whatever reason. There was this foreboding, ominous feeling, even in that happiest of fever dreams. You knew you couldn't trust it. And you, Yeah, exactly. You knew it was not to be trusted. It's eerie. The trust issues that, that just that moment alone gave me, <laughs> I feel like I could talk about for 10 minutes. I don't know. Like, But it, that happens throughout this entire film. Right. But we are just scratching the surface. And did you notice how when he gets up to the attic, like we just seen uh, Blanky cleaning with his, you know, fabric. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the attic and you see the clear trail from the attic door to the window and everything else is filthy. Mm-hmm. That just shows how often he's gone back and forth to that window mm. looking for cars. Yeah. They've done this routinely. Yeah, exactly. Over they, and over. They, mo- they know the plan. They know the routine. They, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's Which just the so hopefulness heartbreaking. of that. It just, yeah. It, the hopefulness of it, oh, that they man. never give up. They always wait expecting him home hopelessness really yeah and like you said you know they they're going up into the attic to see if their master's home and from that first moment it has this distinctly toy story feel as well Mm -hmm. um listener if you have not listened to part one of our brave little toaster series highly recommend you going and doing that because we tie all those threads together between this film and toy story and really pixar and disney's like origins yeah, yeah. as well. There's so. a, a lot of similarities because isn't there a moment where the toys like stack themselves up or they work yes. together to exactly. see something? Mm-hmm. Right. And when and, a car is coming, like it's 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 happening when a oh, car is coming yeah. or you hear, you know, you, you're seeing the humans are taking action and it's causing this gang of, of appliances yeah. or toys, you know, to- Inanimate objects. They're like, okay, mobilize, like yeah. enact the plan. Like, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the exact same feeling that yeah. you get in- Toy Story as well. Not the last Toy Story comparison. No, no. We'll make there tonight. are many. There are many. But I just wanted mm. to make the note that if you want to hear the production story, this is all about the plot and production <laughs> is in part one. So yeah. start there if you need to. Yes. But part of what makes Blanky such a tragic character, there's more there that we get into, but it's his voice. Yeah. It's the sad little baby voice that sounds so just weak and helpless. Mm-hmm. When he cries, it sounds like like the way a child would actually cry. Yep. So who is this voice actor? Oh, wow. Who, I have so much to tell you. Who these characters, all of them? I think it's important to f- kind of understand where uh, the creators and producers were at when they began to cast the film. Like we talked about in part one, pretty extensively, they were on a crazy time crunch. They were doing things in weeks that should have taken years, honestly. Mm, yep. And... As they began to look for the cast for the film, uh, Jerry Reese, the director, was frustrated because many of the people that were coming in to audition were making their voices very exaggerated and cartoony. Mm. And he didn't like that at all. He was looking to bring more reality to the roles. <laughs> uh, and I I think he 
hit the nail on the head there with Blanky, yeah, especially. Sure accomplished that. I think a lot of the characters did sort of become caricatures in the end, but I, I can feel his intention behind making them feel real or hoping for actors that conveyed more honesty in their right. performances. But like I said, they were on such a tight timeline and he was just not having any luck with the people that he was auditioning. Mm -hmm. And at the suggestion of Joe Ramped, who was his co-writer, who was also, you know, storyboarding with him, kind of his partner in crime at the time, Joe was in an improv group called The Groundlings. Oh, I've heard of The Groundlings, I think. Yes. They were super, super famous starting in about like the early 70s. A lot of um, SNL alum came from The Groundlings. It was just, yeah. you know, an improv improv group. So many, many of the voice cast of Brave Little Toaster were actually members of the Groundlings. Nice. Um, because when he started to audition people from this group, he realized that they kind of, not only had they, a lot of them worked together already, but they kind of had that honesty that he mm -hmm. was looking for. Reese also said that having the characters' voices in his head when he was writing the script helped him to personalize the dialogue even more. So the script wasn't complete when he started casting. And then when he did find right. cast members that fit the roles, he even started to rework some of the script that was completed mm. in order to customize some of the sections based on the actors and their personalities. So it was all happening on top of each other in a crazy looping timeline. Yeah. Blanky was voiced by a newcomer to the scene, Timothy E. Day. Uh, he had never done acting work before, little boy, mm. and had asked his mother to take him to auditions because he became fascinated with another child actor voiceover. Aww. Um, he also voices young Rob in several of the flashbacks. I thought so, they sounded familiar mm -hmm, or similar. They were like, this is such a cute kid. He's got such a cute kid voice, and we're just going to put him behind all of the most childlike characters that he we reminded see. me of some something else i couldn't put my finger on he honestly he only did a couple more projects after this um in the hmm. late 80s but i can say with full confidence that blanky is 1000 percent one of the sources of my own childhood separation anxiety yeah it drilled into my head those thoughts that became later in my life ocd yeah which I mean, that's that's his whole <laughs> It's his whole personality wrapped up. His in entire order. personality is wrapped up in his separation from his master and getting back to his master. And mm -hmm. the despair that he feels made such a strange imprint on me as such a young character. Because, or, wow. <laughs> as a, such a When I was a young character a young in the story of my life, I'm the main <laughs> character, don't you know? Exactly. But I was just, I was so young at the time. And so I identified most with Blanky and then yeah. absorbed some of Blanky's personality traits for myself. I would say for better or worse, but it was all just for worse. So that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Can't really. How much um, did you identify with Chicken Little? Hey, people have asked me that before. <laughs> You're not the first. I can ask that because I'm your friend. I identify far more with Blanky than with Chicken Little. I'll say that much. Mm -hmm. However, Chicken Little was one of the stories that my mom all read to me multiple, many times when I would stay at her house <laughs> around the same age. So really, I, who's to say? What came first, the chicken little or the blankie? I don't know. <laughs> I never would have guessed. <laughs> I never would have guessed. Deanna Oliver, voice toaster. If you guys don't want to work, why don't we play a game? There's only one rule. You can't stop till the house is clean. And although Toaster's gender is pretty ambiguous in the film, most mm. official sources describe Toaster as a male. I think that's just patriarchy, to be honest with you. That's funny, because I, I I think when I first began making my notes, I was thinking female. And it's odd, too, because as a kid, I think I thought Toaster was a boy. Yeah. Because he was the lead. He was oh, the lead. Oh, right. They were the lead. Mm -hmm. I don't know. At the time, that was just more common, I guess, sure. than what I was sure. used to. 
But actually, Deanna originally auditioned for the air conditioner uh, doing a Betty Davis impression. (laughs) But she accepted the lead when offered this role instead. And Jerry Reese had conceived Toaster himself, the director, as a female character. Yeah. And he later recalled an anecdote where a crew member slammed the door and walked out because he hired a woman to play the lead role. Wow, really? To that, I say good riddance. Yeah, get out of here. (laughs) Who needs you? Pretty crazy. But in the 90s, Deanna went on to write for the Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures, and Casper as well. Whoa. Um, She's still writing in children's television today, actually, on Curious George and uh, Work It Out Wombats. All right. That's cool. So she, she clearly had ties herself to, like, children's TV. Yeah. Next on my list is Tim Stack as Lampy. Holy mother of Edison! What were you thinking? You might have broken my bulb. Uh, he had appeared on several sitcoms and TV projects in the 80s, including Laverne and Shirley, The Facts of Life, and Punky Brewster. And after Brave Little Toaster, he went on to appear on ALF, The Golden Girls, Tales from the Crypt, The All Wonder right. Years, uh, Parker Lewis Can't Lose with our friend uh, David Stephen Cohen, mm-hmm. uh, Seinfeld, and so many more. But he was all over the place in the 90s, and he still acts today as well. Uh, he also voiced the customer at the spare parts shop <laughs> named Zeke. I catch you at a bad time. <laughs> you have my radio tubes. Speaking of radios, John Lovitz voices the radio. Oh, this just in. Domestic bedroom violence erupts in peaceful Woodland Cottage. We'll keep you posted. Of course, he's supposed to be parodying the loud, pretentious announcers, radio announcers of the, you know, early radio era. I've seen him in a lot of stuff, but I think most recently I saw him in Friends. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> he's, on the he's date like a restaurant Rachel. critic or something. Or no, like no, a, he's, a, he's on the date with Rachel. Or is he the critic? He's the critic because he, he gets the munchies. <laughs> yeah. He really first hit it big as a cast member of SNL from 1985 to 1990. And he has many, many credits to his name, more than I realized. But the pretty darkest of his credits might be as the tarantula from Five Will Goes West. Oh, wow. I think that's more what I associate him with in my head, which... Kind of makes me a little bit creeped out by him at all times, mm-hmm. but that's not his fault. So, no. sorry, John. I had two ways I was going to open this episode. One was to talk about how Maisel and Succession ended <laughs> and Barry, and then do what you did. Um, but the other, I was going to make a, I was going to pretend to be the radio <laughs> announcer, um, talk about the guy who was killed on the train tracks just down the road from me. Oh, man. And then I decided that that probably wasn't the best way to open a super dark episode. Yeah, we've got enough death to talk about today. Anyway. Oh, man. <laughs> we have enough death to think about. I hadn't, hadn't thought about it today. Thank you for putting that back in my head. I've driven past it yeah. a number of times. Oh, God. <laughs> in the 90s, he was also the voice for the red M&M in the commercials for M&Ms. Oh, yes. I so knew that it. voice is probably in your head if you are a millennial. I knew it. Uh, and according to Jerry Reese's website, during pre-production, news broke that John Lovitz had won a spot on Saturday Night Live. Hmm. So this was like the time period when he was just beginning to get his big break. Um, he was also part of the the Groundlings troupe as well. So cool. he was headed to bigger and better things. But Jerry had heard that he was on his way out during pre-production and begged him to stay and do the voice of radio. Because he had written the character with John Lovitz in mind. Mm-hmm. So John agreed, even though his agency was like urging him not to do it, basically. And Jerry finished writing the third act of the script specifically so he could go and meet John at the studio to record. Wow. And his entire performance was completed in one recording session. Jeez. It didn't really come as a surprise to me because in all honesty, the uh, continuous one note tone of just 
energy, I guess. And like, it's not upbeat. It's just... And it's a lot of the same references over and over. Yes. Um, it, it started to grate on me as a child because I didn't get it then. And even now, yeah. I think I just default back to that feeling that I felt. But obviously, the performance is crazy. I could never do anything like that. It's easy to tune out. <laughs> nice. If you will. Um, and he kind of is, yeah, as a character. I just think it's interesting because he had like the most dialogue of any character. He did, yeah. But, he, only but he was just constantly talking, right? Which I think is kind of a funny reference to just background noise of a radio. Oh, background noise of the radio. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. But I can't imagine anybody other than John Lovitz, you know, performing it now. I think uh, Robin Williams would have done a great job. Oh, well, Robin Williams could do anything. <laughs> he could do no wrong. He could do no wrong. And I agree. Robin Williams is the radio. Can you imagine? No. Oh, wow. I wish. This was in the pre, pre-Fern Gully days, so... Pre-Aladdin, pre-Fern Gully. Would have been awesome. Crazy. What a thought. What a concept. Interestingly, though, Jerry Reese, the director, was also radio's singing voice. No, really? He doubled as radio's singing voice. Mm-hmm. Huh. I think that's fun that he he kind of tasked himself with that, especially knowing that John wasn't going to be available, you know, to keep, yeah, yeah, yeah. keep up his recording sessions. How about that? Uh, Thurl Ravenscroft voices Kirby, the vacuum. What do you mean, what are we going to do today? The same thing we've done for the last 2,000 days. You most likely recognize him from voicing Tony the Tiger, which he voiced by himself solely since 1952. Did I know that? Uh, Have we talked about him before? I I don't know. We may have. I feel like it's a very recognizable voice, but he's been in almost everything. Uh, He began his voice acting career in the late 30s, and he lent his talents to many Looney Tunes, uncredited in a lot of cases, which I thought was so strange, but... He was uncredited in Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Lady and the Tramp. His first credited Disney role, as far as I could tell, was as Captain in 101 Dalmatians. I'm having crazy deja vu. (laughs) I've heard you say all of these words together before. Whoa. I am freaked out. Deja vu with Brave Little Toaster. What a weird place to have deja vu. Wow. He also voiced Lethargian in the 1970 Phantom Tollbooth. It's my favorite kids book. I know it is. And he's the singing voice for You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch from Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That is amazing. All of these things somehow were listed as uncredited. Don't get it. Wow. You're a mean one. Hey. Mr. Grinch. That's Thurl Ravenscroft. I have nowhere else to say this, but I looked up Kirby Vacuums Ah. while we're talking about the... Right. The, the actor, the character. Bless. And all the listeners right now, they're also, every time they hear you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, they're going to think of Kirby, the vacuum, eating his cord that they're all traumatized by. So I'm really sorry for uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Mm. But the Kirby vacuum, they're still in business. They've been doing like a hundred years of business now. And they last a long time, like they have like a 30 year lifespan because they're still made of aluminum and not plastic. Mm-hmm. And they still do in-home demonstrations of their product. Wow. Like if you want to buy one. They come to your house and they show it to you. That's so old school. I know. It's awesome. Are you going to buy a Kirby vacuum? No, no, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> I have a Bissell. <laughs> Way too convenient. I need to get a Bissell. So Nintendo claims that the Nintendo character Kirby was not named after the Kirby vacuum. But how can it not be? Kirby sucks things up too. I feel like they just say that to avoid paying royalties. <laughs> I agree. The Kirby vacuum was named after the man who invented it, Jim Kirby. And Nintendo claims, when they're trying to name the character, mm-hmm. someone pitched Kirby as a name. And that was the name of an American lawyer, John Kirby, who defended Nintendo in a previous dispute over Donkey Kong. Mm. And so they claim, no, no, no. I do think I've heard that before. Yeah. I guess I'll give it to them. But it makes so much sense, though. And I have to point out that Nintendo's Kirby 
Uh, his first appearance, his her first appearance was in Kirby's Dreamland mm-hmm. on April 27th. Hey, you share a birthday with Kirby. Mm-hmm. Who'd have thunk? I was one year old. Wow. Anyway. Well, I'm glad we know this now. That was a shallow end of the pool dive. Mm-hmm. A shallow dive on Kirby. A shallow dip. I needed it. I needed to know. A waist deep soak. Oh, uh, this has other connotations. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Phil Hartman, uh, who was, yes, in fact, doing an impression of Jack Nicholson. I knew it! Voiced the air conditioner. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, He was another member of the Groundlings where he helped Paul Rubens develop his character Pee Wee Herman. Mm. So partially responsible for Pee Wee Herman. Uh, He co-wrote the film Pee Wee's Big Adventure and made recurring appearances as Captain Carl on Rubens' show. Wow. He's also, we'll get there later, but the same guy doing an impression of Peter Lorre also voices the hanging lamp yeah uh, yeah yeah. in the chop shop i knew that that's cool so he kind of got to play two really scary characters (laughs) pretty creepy guys yeah it stuck with me for sure you guys really have an attachment for that kid don't you well that's real nice and any day now he might come romping back huh just come whistling right back in through that door and everything will be the same real peachy keen like that was the first thing I wrote down. I was like, this guy's totally trying to mimic Jack Nicholson. And you were not wrong. And I wondered if it wasn't a casting choice because I was like, did they want Jack? And then they couldn't get him? I think him? it was, I think he auditioned with the the impression and they liked it. That's great. Wow. Can you imagine the air conditioner's voice switching to be <laughs> Deanna Oliver who can played Toaster? Can you imagine Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that I wouldn't have been as frightened by the air conditioner if uh, it had been voiced by Deanna Oliver. But The whole bunch of you gotta have a combined wattage of five, maybe less. It's been years. It's scrap metal time. So when they're super sad that it isn't the master, it's just a car passing down the highway, the window unit is just laughing at them, making fun of them. Which sadistic and terrible yeah well you you see how distraught blanky is like it's not just a disappointment it's like Mm -hmm. devastating for blanky especially hurt people hurt people yeah i guess so and he lays down the hard truths even if it is a pretty cynical perspective he says the master left because his family left he's a kid so they might as well accept it you know he's not coming back um and they're as good as dead Mm mm-hmm um, they point out he's just jealous, and we realize this is true mm-hmm. because his own personal trauma consists of the fact that he's always been stuck in the wall. Yeah, and the kid was always too short to reach his I dials. Mm-hmm. I'm not an invalid. I was designed to stick in a wall. I like being stuck in this stupid wall. So he gets super upset, so much so that he short circuits and basically fries himself to death. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly violent. Well, before they have an exchange where, is it Kirby? Kirby says, why don't you just shut off? Yeah. And then the AC responds and says, what are you going to do? Suck me to death? <laughs> yeah. Why are we saying these words? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had to just kind of jump over that. There's a lot of those little moments. Yeah, and I there was are like, so many. I can't mention we, all of them. They're, so. they're everywhere, y'all. There are lots of puns. What are you going to do? Suck me to death? So he practically explodes and dies right there in front of them. And while I appreciate the realism of a dead window unit, it's pretty dark when applied to a sentient character with some very complex, unresolved trauma. Yep. Darker still, how for the remainder of their time in the house, 
the AC unit's corpse is just Hanging totally visible in the window in the background. Oh man, we've talked about it before. I also have a fear of house fires, like electrical appliances and and those mm-hmm. types of things. And I do have to wonder if that is not in some way connected to this film. Not only the AC unit, but as we get to later, yeah. just the electricity in general as a you know driving force yeah. with the yeah. toaster, yeah. etc. Causing a fire and everything. House fires yeah. have always been one of my biggest fears, and this I genuinely think is one of the sources of that. Yeah, it could be. Also, I guess that's why my AC unit went out last year, because it got taunted by all of my other household appliances. <laughs> that's got to <laughs> be At least it. it gives, it assigns- There's uh, no other explanation. Exactly. It assigns explanation to those random uh, appliance disasters that we all do find ourselves facing from time my to time. My HVAC died over Christmas. Yeah, well, you should have told your other appliances no to be nicer to it. <laughs> it's the appliances- Apparently, the, they're fragile. The cats, the ghosts. Hanging on I mean, by a thread. Mm-hmm. These AC units. I mean, mine was like over 30 years old, so mm. it was time. I, I also feel like this scene kind of came out of left field as far as the intensity of it. Like, we haven't felt great. We felt sort of uneasy up until this point. But the intensity of this moment just kind of explodes out of nowhere. Yeah. Which made it more frightening, you know, for the young children watching. And I think made it leave a lasting or more lasting impression on us because it was so jarring. I think it was meant to be like a wet your whistle kind of situation of like, oh, yeah. in mm-hmm. this universe, these things happen. I guess so. This is this is the harsh reality. They just went really harsh. Really harsh. He didn't just like keel over Mm-mm. and turn off. He had essentially a mental breakdown. Yeah. It, was it a suicide? I don't know. Well, but had, I do know that there was no. a death within the first 16 minutes of this movie. It was a heart attack or something Not like that. Not any better for me as a kid. It's a blood pressure thing. Oh. I have hypertension. He didn't kill himself. Uh, other characters do in this movie, but they do, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's rough. It's, it's just rough. really rough. Way, way more so than I remember it being. Yeah, I, it, it took me like a like a week longer than planned to rewatch this movie because I kept putting it off. Yeah, I didn't really want to subject myself to it. It's uh, but we had to emotionally charged. Ooh, pun intended. So just after this, they hear in another car and they find out the house is being put up for sale. So Toaster, like we said earlier, literally jumps on a soapbox. Yes. We're going out to find him. And tells them that they're going to go to the city, damn it, and they're going to find the master. Well, how exactly would you propose we're going to do that exactly? I don't know. So they go through a bunch of different options and none of them work. And it's pretty funny. But then they settle on Kirby pulling them on a rolling office chair. Mm-hmm. So this is where the physics prove to be a little bit screwy. They're implying that Kirby can't really move. Unless he's plugged into power. Mm-hmm. But they're all moving and doing without being plugged into power already. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Scott Giff. Hands on the table. Thank you. And later in the swamp, they make this half-hearted attempt to explain that radio is powered by his backup batteries. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really explain anybody else. Mm-mm. And so my only thought is that to perform their function, they need power. Yeah. Like, Lampy can't turn his bulb on unless he's plugged in, but he can hop around and clean the house, apparently. Mm-hmm. Toaster can't make toast. Can't make toast, but, but he can, can do move everything around. Else. Right. Okay. So I think All that's right. the concept. This is our construct. We need, yeah, we need to just get, get over that hump. Except that a vacuum can still roll around. The wheels can still turn and, and go without being plugged in. I can, I can get, I, yeah, we've suspended our disbelief at this point. Yeah, we're going to have to. We're going to have to because... They go into the garage and get the super dangerous for children car battery. (laughs) And there are many, many issues with this about how you can't power 
these small appliances using a car battery. No. But even if this was possible, the battery would be long dead. Mm-hmm. We've already established it's been at least five years. Car batteries die so, so, so fast. freaking fast. They'd have to charge the battery somehow to then get it to move, which they And then charge it again while they were on their journey, most likely. It's pr- it wouldn't happen. It's problematic. <laughs> but we're going to have to look past we're, it. Yeah, we're not here for that. And try not to get they hung up. They couldn't go on their journey without this. We accept it. We'll move on from it. These are the stakes. Yeah, we're going to have to just accept this and move on. (laughs) I can also say, like, as they're trying to figure this out, you know, they're doing all these, like, experiments and, you know, how how are we going to make it, right? Yeah. How are we going to do our Wizard of Oz, combine all of our skills for this journey? Mm -hmm. I I don't know what it was, but I've told you before, we've talked about on the show before, like, when I was a little kid, a lot of the games that I would play, like the imagination games, would be we're going off on a journey out into the storm or we have to go, you know, on this big adventure out yeah. into the yeah. wilderness or the, Cross you know, the desert I was always, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there was always this, which this is not an uncommon trope, right? Especially no, yeah. in kids media, but the idea that we all had to contribute in some way or like you all our had a skill. skill set had yeah. to work like a puzzle to fit together. This was part <laughs> of Every imagination game that I played as a kid, every single one. And I really think this was probably the first time I saw that. Oh, Um, man. Especially because it was so literal in this sense. We all had our own shtick. Yeah. There was this one time I remember (laughs) me and my sister and our friend Ryan, uh, who who, uh, runs like one of the bars downtown. Uh, I'll tell you later. (laughs) And there was this one game that we went to her house to play, me, Lauren, and Ryan. And we were like running a gym. Nice. Or some crazy, I don't even, I don't know what it was. And I was the fitness instructor. Naturally. And so I was in charge. That's what I see you as, my fitness instructor. Hey, look, when I was younger, (laughs) yeah, I was, I I did the sports. You did do the sports. I I forget that all the time. I don't see I sported around. Like you're fit. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying you're not fit. You see me in my tank top? I don't see you as like a jock type. Oh God. Oh God. I don't, I like, I don't see you as the jock type. So it's just funny to me anytime that comes up. I went for a run this morning. I've run every morning for the past week. I'm so proud of you. Before my coffee. That's a big deal. Honestly, it's a personality change. When your, when your anxiety, uh, when your anxiety, what am I trying to say? Metastasizes. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. When you can't Um, sleep because you have too much to do and your body says, go for a jog. mm -hmm. Your body says, run, run. Um, yeah, and I tried to take my shirt off to be the fitness instructor guy, to be all muscly. And my uh-huh. sister said, I'm going to tell mom, <gasps> put your shirt on. <gasps> Lauren said, you can't do that. You were just that. trying to be in character. Yeah. You were an actor. I was just getting into character. That's what I do. You've done that even from a young age. That's so funny. <laughs> anyway, we can move on. I'm really glad we got to hear about that. But yeah, I just, I I saw in this scene, in this sequence, so many of the, like, not just the games I played, but the thought patterns Mm-hmm. that I had as a young child. Is that weird? Like that's It just checks out. Yeah. I don't know. And I listener, please write in. Tell us if this resonates with you at all. Just the way that you thought about, you know, life. Even now when I prepare for a road trip, I think about it in these kind of terms. Like what could go wrong? Prepare for the worst. Everybody <laughs> man like, your stations. I like, think of like Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Because it's like, what do you bring to the table? What's your story? Each character just has that element of yeah. what makes them them. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. Very classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So write in and tell us all the times you got in trouble for taking your shirt off. That too. Yeah. Ladies. And, um, <laughs> you know, we're all human. Not these guys. They're appliances. <laughs> so they're, they're leaving the home. They're start this journey. They're all scared. It's awesome. Right. But before they leave, I have one more observation of the house. In the opening shot of the cabin, there appears to be 
a Japanese cherry blossom mm. growing next to the house. Mm -hmm. I think this is a nod to the yokai of Japanese folklore. Okay, you love the yokai. I do. Yokai are Japanese spirits that inhabit inanimate objects, thus bringing them to life. Mm -hmm. Either the yokai is a spirit that inhabits the object, or the object itself becomes the yokai. Mm -hmm. Japanese storytelling tradition holds that if a household object is neglected for a hundred years, it will become sentient. And I think this is not only a nod to the yokai, like the whole mm -hmm. inanimate object becoming sentient, but it's also a commentary on how our small appliances feel like they've been neglected mm -hmm. for a hundred years. For so long, right? Just like an exaggeration. Yeah. They feel neglected. Absolutely. They are neglected. They're abandoned. Mm -hmm. As we said in the first part, there are only four original songs in this movie. Yes. And this is the first one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> City of Light. <laughs> so this is a filler song to pass time along the journey. Mm -hmm. Pun intended. As one of the main points of the song is the tinge of sadness surrounding the realities of life. Time passes, and so will your life if you don't do something with your time, with the, with the time you're given. It's in the cradle and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's subtle, yeah. but it's there. Mm -hmm. The lyrics don't really add anything to the story other than giving us the sense of hopefulness. But I do, I, I enjoy the style of music. I like this song, kind of. I don't know if it's because I didn't remember it that I don't care for it, but because I, I don't, don't have that tie to it from childhood, because I, like I, I mentioned this in part one, but I, my brain did not encode any of the lyrics, yeah. except for maybe a little bit of worthless, maybe. Yeah. Otherwise they just didn't stick. And that's so uncommon for me that it was just strange. I don't know. Okay, I, I, so I, really, I took that to mean that baby Kalen wasn't a big fan. <laughs> I don't think this movie needed music. I agree. I think it, it, it would have been darker without it. Yeah. But the, the songs really are just more of distractions from the, yeah. Issues at hand, we'll <laughs> the say. The issues at hand, yeah. But I do, you know, I appreciate it for what it is, because it's a call to adventure that outlines their excitement for the destination and their reunion with their master. Mm -hmm. But besides that, again, it just doesn't really serve no. a purpose. It doesn't continue plot or do anything. And tell me if you agree, I don't know. But to me, especially lyrically, the songs, especially this one, feel old. Like, they don't feel even like they're from the 80s. Right. No. They feel older than that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, like, and strangely they're odd anachronistic, too. too. They're odd because they don't fit specifically into any genre. Yeah, it, they don't have strong ties to a genre. I think that's they why don't. possibly it bothers me because it's just kind of floating in every sense. They have no identity. Yeah. You can't ground Which, them in anything. Maybe that's commentary. Like that could be the we point. could give them more credit and say that. I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you that as a four-year-old, it wasn't as gripping as, say, uh, why should I worry? <laughs> no, you're right. But I did laugh that like right in the middle of the song, Kirby needed to empty his bag because <laughs> yeah. he's been vacuuming this whole time. Yeah. Um, he would never still function. I understand that no, he would never Kirby work. vacuums are meant to be, you know, no, I'm, to hold I'm up super, to time and everything. I'm super annoyed that the vacuum acts like a lawnmower. Okay. <laughs> That's not how vacuums and he just, work. He just turns his setting to shag when he needs to get through some thick grass or yeah. literally mow down like reeds and stuff, cutting through like woods. We were just talking about using the bathroom on road trips. Oh, yeah, we were. Like, we, we did have that conversation. <laughs> Recently on the podcast. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. This, yeah, it feels like a family road trip at a certain point. You know, like they, yeah. they employ some of those classic like sibling 
road trip fights and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That we were all familiar with. It's it's levity. But it's not yeah. funny levity. No. So it doesn't really make the darker parts of this movie any more tolerable. It nope. It just makes the good times look not as good. Yeah. All it does. Strangely. <laughs> I maybe and that's maybe oh, part Lord. of it. Like they're I think they were trying to introduce contrast, right? They wanted the good times to feel good or feel sure. feel better. But yeah. as we will find many, many times throughout this film, they didn't. <laughs> they couldn't. <laughs> I don't know why, but there was something <laughs> about the good times that just also weren't good. No, they weren't good. And I think that's why it hurts so bad. I don't know. I'm going to be yelling about this. Is this because like when you and I experience really good times... We're still sad. Maybe. Like, yes. Like, it's still depressing. It could be part of what I carry with me. Like, holidays, um, birthdays. Yeah, I get fun so events, sad on birthdays. Successes. I'm still like sad. Yeah, same. And maybe, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's just that this, it, it's, it's the foreboding feeling. That's what mm -hmm. I kept thinking the whole time. Ominous. Something ominous is hanging over even the happier quote unquote mm -hmm. i hesitate to even use that word moments of this film just not and as terrible yeah yeah and i just i don't know exactly what it was because it felt darker really than i think i can say anything we've talked about so far yeah yeah well it's a lot like so we both when we finish succession there's that little tidbit at the end on the on the finale where the creator the writer talks about you know the show we and, weren't giving any spoilers by the way listener you no spoilers you can tune in it's okay i think it was actually the executive producer who mentioned how even like the good times in the show feel like just more of a distraction from the inevitable the, the inevitable tragedy because the show Correct. is a tragedy wow who so who would i think have we thought? just applied this to brave little toaster who would have thought that we could sit here and compare something like succession and brave little toaster but you <laughs> i think you're HBO spot ever. on with that i think you're <laughs> spot on with that i think i think there was just something inevitable like you knew something bad was inevitable so you couldn't even i don't know like suspend your mm -hmm. fear it's just not palatable you couldn't suspend your fear you couldn't suspend that that growing sense of uh, anxiety or un unease. Like you mentioned, why should I worry? You watch Oliver and Company and you're instantly so sad and then the movie makes up for it. Yes. In, in, you know, you in get a bounty those waves. of ways to feel good. You get it in waves good. so that you can cope with it. But Brave Little Toaster doesn't have the waves. It's no. just one steady decline. It's deep. <laughs> and then it stays deep until the end. Yeah. And it doesn't really redeem itself. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We are getting way ahead of ourselves. We. This is the conversation that that we will continue to have throughout this episode. And I, I am excited yes. too, because I've needed to happening. talk this through deeply. Mm -hmm. They stop for the night in the woods a couple times, which feels totally inspired by the Bremen town musicians. Uh -huh. um, when the animals do the same thing, they stop for the night in the woods. Mm -hmm. This is the Grimm Brothers fairy tale, just to remind you, listener. Yes, that, yes that the Grimm Brothers fairy tale. The novella that this film is based on was based on. Right. Which so two layers back. Probably by now I have released on our Patreon a reading that I've done. Yes. Of the Bremen Town musicians. So stoked. I had a lot of fun. So it's great supplemental material to these the series, honestly. And it's potentially actual levity because I <laughs> basically am an idiot for ten minutes straight. Well, the listeners gonna um, love to hear that. If you need something hopefully. to, you know, brighten up this story in your mind or memory, Christian uh, reading the story is a great way to do that. <laughs> we haven't gotten to it yet, but I do my very, very best Peter Laurie impression. 
Oh, I can't for wait. For one of the characters. I can't wait. So you'll have to wait and see. All right. So they stop for a night in the woods. I'm already, t- I'm like physically in my body right now hearing you say those words. I feel bad. <laughs> Listener, do you as well? Like keep, it's we're, so we're hanging with you. We're hanging in there. But like hearing you just getting to this point, <laughs> it is so strange how my body knew this movie better than my mind did. I didn't, I've barely remembered the plot lines, yeah, yeah. but my body knew what was going to happen. Your nervous system was ready. Your nervous 100%. system was just already tense. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and it's still, my God, sorry. I, I, I'm stalling. I'm scared. No, Go ahead. This is because, this is because we see Blanky, sweet, poor, little insecure Blanky, mm-hmm. try to snuggle up and cuddle with all of them. And all of them push him away. It makes me sick. To the point where he has to sleep completely alone in the middle of this dark forest floor. Mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking. It really heartbreaking. is. He just needs some comfort. He's a child. But this is all building up to a really nice commentary on empathy that we will get to on our second night in the woods. Mm-hmm. But for now, we got to go to the lake. Yeah. <laughs> we need we to do. go to a Memorial Day on the lake because it's Memorial Day. Yeah, we are talking today. about this on Memorial Day. So. In memoriam, BLT. Oh, man. So the, the purpose of this scene. It's a really silly Disney oasis um, that shows that not every single bit of the outside world is as scary uh, and dangerous as they continue to tell small appliances and small children for the rest of this movie. Mm -hmm. So they needed something right here to go ahead and continue to try to brighten up the landscape. Again, it didn't. (laughs) No, it didn't. It didn't. So So there's two worlds colliding. We have our indoor characters meeting a whole bunch of outdoor creatures, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun, except, again, falls short. Emotionally speaking. Yeah, there's this, like, opera singing fish, mm-hmm. uh, a troop of synchronized swimming frogs. That stuck with me, I will say. I remembered the fish, for whatever reason. <laughs> That's really all I've got. There's a lot more to this, but it's mostly just, again, passing time. Mm-hmm. And there's music and all kinds of fun stuff, like the insects are humming, the City of Lights reprise. And, and I, th- I think you're right, too. I think it was an attempt to give the visual, to, to make it a little more visually stimulating for a young child, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's a lot of what the scene does or is supposed to do. I mean, because, like, if, if one of the whole messages is trying to, like, show children, like, be brave, go live your life, mm-hmm. go accomplish great things, and then they show you how horrible the yeah. world is because Didn't literally everything <laughs> that they encounter is terrible and trying terrible. to kill them. Terrible. That's At these are conflicting turn. messages, Disney. They are. I mean, not Disney. You know, quote unquote Disney. Not Disney. Disney, not Disney. <laughs> and right here, while they're meeting all these little creatures, we come to one of the most depressing moments in this film. Mm-hmm. So the frogs and the squirrels are using Toaster's chrome plating like a funhouse mirror. And it was genuinely kind of funny, but Toaster runs away. Mm-hmm. And so hiding from these little critters, Toaster meets the lonely flower. The flower sees its own reflection in Toaster's chrome exterior, and thinking it's another flower, seems to be filled with life and happiness at the appearance of a companion. Once Toaster rejects the flower and abandons it, it wilts and dies, Mm -hmm. seemingly from loneliness. Yeah. We've had a few people write to us to say that the dying flower Made them incredibly sad. Me too. Even as children. Yeah. And I have to admit that it bothered me as a grown-ass man. It was a very strange moment because, again, similar to the AC, you weren't expecting it. There was no... It's out of nowhere. ...build up to then 
I don't know, just the pacing of it made it so jarring. It was, it felt out of place. It felt too heavy, right? Too heavy for that moment. Like Blanky crying. Yes. It's like, this is supposed to hurt you. Yes. This is supposed to hurt. We understand now as adults that that moment exists, like you said, to hurt us. Yeah. It's trying to tell us something emotionally. And I think it's not done in a sophisticated way. It's not done in the, the it's it like Disney will sometimes like Trojan horse their emotional stuff. You know, they kind of yeah. package it differently so that it's a little more palatable for a child. Sure. This doesn't do that. It just gives it to you anyway. Yeah. Um, there's no spoonful of sugar. There's no warning, no explanation, no sugar. And I You're think right. that might be the defining characteristic that's different for me from like a classic Disney film, say, because a lot of those are heavy too. Um, but I think that they can kind of dupe you out a little bit and say, okay, you had that medicine, but now here's this Band-Aid or, you know, you know what I mean? Like it, right. it's just packaged so differently. Right. And here it just stands alone, cold, barren emotion that just punches you in the face and then there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're a kid, you don't know what to do with it. It doesn't make any sense. So then it's even harder to deal with because you don't, you don't have the skill set to cope with it yet. Right. You're not, you're not quite emotionally mature enough to really comprehend it. You just yeah. know that it hurts. It makes you so sad. Yeah. It which was my so first sad. impression yeah. watching it recently. For sure. But because this did bother me so much, I looked it up and looked into it a little bit. And I think part of the reason it ended up in the film is because the daisy is actually a much more prominent figure in the novel, this flower. Oh, okay. Seeing it in the film, to me now, makes a little more sense just knowing that background. I still think it was too heavy-handed, mm-hmm. Yeah. but I get it a little bit better. So to give you a brief summary of how it happens in the novella, during their first afternoon in the woods, the appliances stop to rest in a meadow after a brief rainstorm. Uh, the toaster is surprised by a daisy who speaks only in verse. Okay. Which... Dish says, daisies, being among the simpler flowers, characteristically employ a rough sort of octosyllabic doggerel, which means basically just not very well put together poetry, is what he's saying in this. So like all of the poetry I've ever written. (laughs) (laughs) You have a lot in common with the daisy. Um, No. (laughs) And dogs. The daisy, (laughs) and dogs somehow. But the daisy uses its verse to declare its love for the toaster, having fallen in love with its reflection in the toaster's chrome side. Mm. And when the toaster excuses itself to rejoin its appliance friends, the daisy begs the toaster to pluck me and take me where you're bound. I cannot live without you here. Then let your bosom be my beer. Oh, my God. So the toaster's pretty shocked by this expression of love. I get it. And leaves the daisy in the ground and returns to their appliance friends mm-hmm. where the blankie has folded itself into a tent to shelter the others. Oh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. So we have this moment with the daisy, which is just the daisy clearly loves the toaster in a way that the toaster can't compute or can't understand. Right. And it's hard to say whether this is commentary of something man-made or something chrome and an and appliance, essentially. Sure, yeah, That yeah. they can't feel things the way that something from nature can feel things. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much she was trying to get into the like breakdown of the emotion between those two characters or whether it's the maturity versus the naivete in, in the toaster. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Natural versus unnatural. But it does seem that it had a similar tone in the novella and I think it carried into the film. No, that's cool. But again, knowing that as a 30-year-old adult is one thing and kind of cool. Yeah. Seeing it as a four-year-old child is less cool and just sad. Like you said, so I don't know. That's so funny because I I have such similar research for this, but totally different. 
Yeah. We we went to two different places. Okay. So I like that you mentioned Trojan horse because I went to Greek mythology. As one does. I found that the whole point of this scene in the movie is to be an allusion to the story of Narcissus. Mm-hmm. Narcissus was born of river god Cephasus and a water nymph named Liriope. As the story goes, Narcissus was beautiful and everyone loved him, but he loved no one in return. So the gods cursed him to be unable to have anything he actually loved. Mm. Eventually, he spots his reflection in the river, and vowing to never leave the side of the one he loved, he died there, right there, Mm. on the riverbank. Some versions say he drowned, and others say he turned into a flower, which now bears the name Narcissus. Whoa. So looking carefully, the flower in this scene in the movie resembles a daffodil, which is a member of the Narcissus genus. There are Narcissus flowers that are not daffodils, but daffodil is the most common name for Narcissus flowers because they tend to grow alongside waterbanks. So TV Tropes says that Thomas Dish's first published poem was called Echo and Narcissus, which I'm assuming is a poetic retelling of the classic tragic Greek myth of Echo and Narcissus. Mm-hmm. So that's what I discovered. Whoa. And it seems like I, this is sort of uh, interweaving. My mind is, yeah. I think it's a lot of both. Of what Dish did with his poetry and then what he did with his novella and the filmmakers taking both and sort of combining them. Mm-hmm. Because it still has that true, the flower sees its own reflection mm-hmm. and falls in love with it and tries to get Toaster to stay. Yeah. But Toaster leaves. It's also obviously where we get, you know, narcissist. Yes, of course. Personality disorders where you're involved with yourself or overtly involved with yourself. I think it was Freud who just took the Greek myth and Mm -hmm. applied the name narcissistic to that sort of Mm self-absorbed nature. And you, again, I think think you're more spot on with, with the Greek mythology, seeing the flower die. After it's abandoned. Yeah, I think it's both. I, I think, think it's, it's all these things together. <laughs> now, now that it's all kind of swirling around in my head, I'm imagining, you know, Toaster being Toaster, having none of this knowledge, right? And maybe mm-hmm. that's the whole point because Toaster doesn't know these things. Right. Um, Toaster is brave and is, all, you know, has, has their own qualities, but Toaster is not um, a scholar, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had in my head that, that Toaster was smarter than Toaster ends up being in the movie like as a child i thought of toaster as being smarter i guess <laughs> yeah but wow it just blew up my mind it, it definitely makes sense to me that toaster doesn't have any of this knowledge so to toaster yeah. it's just this sad weird moment of like oh no what's wrong with you super confused so now it's funnier to me in my head of just like the the brave little toaster totally just bebopping through this weird <laughs> meadow scene and sidestepping all of that weird emotional adult like you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, just like mental. inching away, like, um, yeah, like, okay, well, like, neither of us are good with compliments. No, like, as soon as somebody says something nice, you're like, oh, yeah, um, mm, yeah, I that's, don't know. that part's relatable where it's kind of like, fun oh, commentary on that, too. Yeah, kind of. Where Toaster's like, I'm not what you think I am, mm-hmm. like, and st- yep. <laughs> stop trying to kiss me, okay? This is not, this is not good. <laughs> Something's wrong with you, and a lot of like. There are just, okay, there are so, so many layers to this scene, too, because I think a lot of people online will also kind of give it this sexual undertone and say that the kiss is what put Toaster off the whole thing because it was unfamiliar. It was mature. Well, if a stranger tried to kiss me, I'd feel kind of weird, too. Oh, same, same. Absolutely. But that's in there, too. It's kind of in that whole pot. The whole thing's just stirred around Mm -hmm. together in that moment. And it's big old soup. Weird. 
Weird is the word that I yeah come to. <laughs> weird is a good word. I don't know how else to describe it. It's weird. So I don't know if this bears any genuine meaning in the Brave Little Toaster universe of the film, but if the flower is meant to be Narcissus, then it works as both a figurative and literal reflection of humanity's self-absorption, its arrogance, and ignorance in its pursuit of beautiful, ideal, perfect things. Yeah. It could very well be a simple warning to beware what you fall in love with, taking care that it doesn't become a lethal obsession, mm. a fatal attraction, or if you will. Just take care that what you're falling in love with isn't the thing that you're projecting onto them. Exactly. To um distill it down to this movie, back to a children's film, mm -hmm. if you can call it that. I think from a symbolism standpoint, the flower represents the plight of our hero appliances. It was content to live alone until it found a companion. And once that companion left, it knew what it was missing and could no longer see a point in living without it. Yeah. Same with the appliances. They know what it's like to love and be loved by Rob, mm -hmm. their master. And if they can't find him, or if he rejects them when they do, they too are in danger of dying the wilting death of a lonely flower. Mm. So I think this works on just numerous levels. As boys like girls say... They say it's better to have loved and lost. I wish that I had never loved at all. <laughs> oh my God, what a good song. <laughs> I mean, that first album is gold. Oh, there's nothing better. Ugh. Can you believe that we're able to be like poetry scholars and into Greek mythology and 90s kids and emo? I love it. You know, all of it is swirling everything's together. Everything's together in this one moment. I know. I'm healing. I will tell you, I'm healing. I don't feel as terrible as I did when I first saw the scene. No, learning all this stuff made me feel way better about this dead flower. Yeah. But they just, I get the need to put something like that, something so poetic, so visually poetic and meaningful mm -hmm. into your movie, especially when you're scrambling for ideas and like you don't know what to do because you have no time. Yeah. But like the consequences They're rough. of this scene, the effect this would have it's so crazy on an undeveloped too. child's psyche. Exactly. Because not only did they not have time to explain it, they probably didn't feel like they could explain it yeah. at a preschool level, you know, at a young sure. child level. So they just decided not to and instead just had the kids experience, the kids being me, <laughs> the kids being children in the 80s and 90s, experience yeah. that moment without the knowledge, just as we all do. And choosing not to give the flower a voice like it was in the novella, that's surprising to me too, because mm -hmm. it's just this little like vignette of a moment. In this universe, the that never would of have a happened. Personality of an entity—you just see this little moment of this entity's life, this being. Of all the moments they chose to waste time in this movie, you could have <laughs> yeah. given the flowers some goddamn dialogue and helped <laughs> us all feel better about the yeah, world. Yeah, we could have all gotten it over some, it a little easier. It could have been, you know, like make it a trope, make it an archetype. Yeah, the stranger you meet on your journey, the person that you meet when you wander from the path, you wander from your friends. And you meet the character off in the shadows that talks to you mm -hmm. and gives you some advice, some wisdom. That's what the flower could have yeah, been. They could, could have repurposed have it. It could have even been not a character that gives you advice or wisdom, but a character. It could still be a character that confuses you. Sure. But it could have been given dialogue that could give us keys to unlock that confusion. You I know mean, what I mean? J.K. Rowling made a whole seven books of Dumbledore. <laughs> Doing that same thing yeah. for thousands and thousands of pages. Yeah, they they didn't intend the flower to be an a, like an aspirational character, obviously. Clearly, but they that just meant they left it to this really tragic moment that maybe did more damage. So more proof that it's just a tragedy in the end. So 
while we're still in the meadow, yeah, I, I do have to share another little note from the novella. I think this is kind of more widely known as why this story is associated with some, some strange gender commentary. Mm-hmm. But in the meadow, uh, in the novella, the appliances run into Harold and Marjorie, who are married squirrels. Okay. And the squirrels and the appliances have this very awkward encounter where the squirrels ask what gender the appliances are. Um, and this confuses the appliances because they aren't. <laughs> Talk gendered. about inappropriate questions to ask strangers. Well, apparently it's not <laughs> the only inappropriate thing that happens because this confusion about gender and yeah. the appliances just being totally, I don't know that I can say ignorant, but they, they're very much like confused by the question because they simply don't have gender. No, I, I do appreciate this. It's apparently followed by a bunch of inappropriate jokes from the squirrels. Oh, no, that's not as I good. didn't look up the jokes specifically, but apparently neither group finds them funny. They just kind of introduce them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the commentary that Dish was trying to make is exactly. Could be just like making a not funny joke about how it's just not important. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know if the commentary from Dish is like, why do we need to gender everything to children? Or why do we need to gender colors, et cetera? Why is that such a gendered stereotyped thing in our society? I don't know if that's what he's trying to say. I really, I couldn't tell you. Um, I may be giving him too much credit here because there are some sources that uh, kind of call him out as being rather sexist as a person against (laughs) women. Um, Dish, that is. Yeah, well, we'd have to read his works to Uh, know. Yeah. I don't know. but, But the quote from... The novella after this encounter is something that I do appreciate. Um, he says, gender and the complications it gives rise to simply aren't relevant to the lives appliances lead. Hmm, okay. And I'm like, well, okay then. Sure. All right. Yeah. Like I, I, that was the pin he tried to put in it. And I guess he just introduced this conflict as kind of a thought provoking moment to say, well, why do we need the appliances to have gender? And we don't, but society does for some reason. So yeah. I think that's part of why Toaster's gender being so fluid over the years has carried through is because it was a point that Dish was making. I wonder how prevalent that kind of question would have been back in the 80s. Like, I don't know when people began to sort of go, hmm, why do we need to be male and female? Yeah. Like, I, I don't really know how far back this well, goes. We talked, we talked a little bit about this with um, our conversation about David Bowie in the Labyrinth series. Yeah, you're um, right. That's how true. a lot of his music and lifestyle was questioned mm-hmm. because people wanted him to fall within a binary. And I think that's, that's all we're trying to say is that yeah. the binary has never really been black and white as much as a lot of people would like it to be because it does make things quote unquote easier, right? Like that could be an easier thing, but not in nature, Mm -hmm. not in life, not anywhere is devoid of that gray area. This has gray area too. Only if the system you've established requires categories, which a lot of ours are reliant on categorizations. But life has gray area and gender does too. And of course, we could get into a whole complicated conversation on this, but like sex does not equal gender. No, you're right. And vice versa. Gender is a socialized concept, Mm -hmm. much like Mm -hmm. virginity is a socialized concept. It's something that we assign socially. It's not inherent, I guess. Right. And not to say that we are experts in this at all. We are both still learning, um, still trying to view things as inclusively as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, We're glad Mm -hmm. to help you do the same. But I think, you know, it's important to note that we are by no means authority on this subject, but it is something that, you know, comes up a lot in these conversations. And I think it's just worth pointing out that, that Dish was questioning the 
standard as well. The norm of why do you need this to be true? Yes, yes. So, why do you need this to be true? And it's something that follows this movie in a lot of different commentaries that I've read. It follows the story, mm -hmm. I should say. And I think the argument can be made that if you need that to be a staple of your society, of your culture, of your community, you're missing a few, you know, key elements yourself. Like if you yeah. need something to be 100% what you believe it is, mm -hmm. then there's already something wrong. You have to there. allow room. You have to allow room for the unknown. Yeah, yeah. Nature, honestly. Nature. Because it is mm -hmm. nature at the end of the day. Nature has never existed in a binary. The thing is, the world might not work exactly how you think it does, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Gosh darn it, that's just all right. Has to be. You want to go into the spooky forest with me? Yes, Christian. And see what happens? <laughs> I'll go into the spooky forest with you. I'm still getting all those chills and unpleasant feelings in my body of avoidance. I really do wish there were like more spooky forests to just go like wander into. Any forest can be spooky if you go there <laughs> at the right time. <laughs> that's true. So this one that our appliances go into is so spooky that we get a lions and tigers and bears oh my oh reference. My. I sure do. And our appliances rest for the night, assuming that letting the battery rest will recharge it. We have to stop here only for a while. Just long enough to lose our minds. We'll be cannibals within a few days. I've seen it happen. I don't know if it's the score in this moment. You know, of course, you know, they're entering a spooky forest. Like, this is this is scary. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it's just too heavy-handed. There's something about the combination of the characters' silence and the undertones in the score and this just ominous, mm -hmm. anything could happen and it probably won't be good mm -hmm. feeling. Very hesitant. That, I think, Very again, ominous. has carried with me through my life on trips, especially. You know, I get a lot of anxiety when I'm planning a trip or, like, I'm going out of my yeah. normal path. Yeah. I think some of it comes down to this. <laughs> you never know what might happen. You never know. You might be gone just long enough to lose your mind. Like... <laughs> you might wind up trying to camp out for the night in a super spooky jack-o'-lantern tree with this crazy monster face mm -hmm. that was very Snow White to me. Definitely a lot of those references in this yeah. in this forest felt very Snow White to me too. Mm -hmm. Well, they're all arguing and Blanky has the sweetest moment where he makes a tent mm -hmm. for all of them to sleep under. Happens in the novel too. So here's where we get the really great empathy kindness conversation between Toaster and Lampy. Mm -hmm. So we learn none of them are really ever very nice to Blanky. No. But Toaster is being kinder to Blanky than usual. And Toaster tries to explain this in terms that Lampy will understand. It's kind of hard to describe. It's like being next to a new loaf of bread. Lampy isn't quite getting it until they share a mutual affinity for a warm glow. So I thought this was a pretty masterful way of showing how two completely different types of people can understand each other by finding common ground. If you just try a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's how we're alike that defines our humanity, not how we're different. Yeah. And this kind of goes with like, we were talking to David and Jody about empathy um, in our hangout session. Mm -hmm. David was talking about the difference between something being simple, but not simplistic. Mm -hmm. So it's simple enough for kids to understand, but this is a very complex topic. Well, yeah, and they also get into trying to kind of describe what love feels like mm -hmm. or acceptance, I guess. Yeah. But it also has this tone of being sort of conditional in a way. Yeah. I don't know what it said to me as a kid. I don't know if it got to the point that you're describing for me as a child. I would have liked it to have that lasting impression, but I don't know that it did. Well, a lot of their like purpose is still contingent on what they can do. 
like exactly. a service they can provide. Exactly. Exactly. So like, yeah, we're trying not to make communism yeah, yeah. parallels. Yeah. If you're not providing your services to everyone around you, then you're not lovable is I think what I took when I maybe shouldn't have. I don't know if that's what they meant in the moment. I think they genuinely were just trying to say that it's better to show kindness to someone who needs it than to be selfish. Yeah, which I don't disagree with, obviously. It's like when Atticus Finch (laughs) tells Scout, if you learn the trick of empathy, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. Yeah, he's not wrong. I think the creators are basically trying to use this concept that like if everything on the planet is sentient, if they can like kind of get it in the weird heads of children, if everything on this planet is sentient. Shouldn't you treat everything well? Maybe they didn't do it the right way. Maybe they got halfway there. Maybe, yeah. They're heavy-handed when they don't need to be, and then they pull back before they should, maybe, yeah, maybe. on certain things. But again, it's all overshadowed by this deep-seated terror that I feel in my bones. Yeah. Because we're about to come upon perhaps the most discussed and talked about <laughs> element of this film. And then the other shoe drops. Yeah. And Toaster has a nightmare. I audibly gasped when I watched this for the first time. I, I threw a hand over my mouth and I don't, th- I don't think I breathed yep. for like two and a half minutes. Like I you probably can't. almost you, had brain damage. It is captivating in the worst way. So here's Toaster's nightmare. The moment you have all been waiting for. The master, as a child, is making toast until the toast begins to burn, filling the room with a smoke demon that kidnaps the master. Hexus, is that you? doing here get out of here go back to fern gully actually don't go back to don't go back to fern gully (laughs) get the out of fern gully (laughs) the fiery devil clown arises from the flames and says he's holding a fork and a water hose he sprays the water and the giant wave of water turns into dozens of giant forks that try to stick themselves into toaster slots. Exclamation points everywhere. Not the visual you want to give to children at all. Then toaster is dangling over a bathtub full of water. And then toaster falls into the water and the image is replaced with electric shocks and bolts of lightning as it transitions out of the nightmare and into the reality of the lightning storm that's blown in over the spooky forest. Maniacal clown laughter. <sighs> My notes, <laughs> I was like typing like mostly lowercase. <laughs> and then you went all caps. I was like, the dream about the black smoke. And then I said, and fire. And that f-ing clown that whispers <laughs> run. <laughs> yeah. It just increased in volume on the page. I did the same thing. And then I had to actually make sense of my notes so that I didn't read it word for word exactly yeah. how I wrote. It's rough. The dark imagery here is that sticking a fork in a toaster or dropping one into a bathtub could kill someone. Yep. These are the things that kill people. So the toaster, you know, putting ourselves into the toaster's shoes, I guess. Mm-hmm. The toaster's dreaming about potentially killing someone and the fear of that. The fear kind of, of being the cause of someone's death. Exactly. Not killing someone, but yeah, fair. being fair. responsible fair for the death of someone. Terrifying, truly. I've Something had these that dreams. I worry about. I've had those dreams. Yeah, for sure. It is... A nightmare. There's no other way to put it. It is the worst. (laughs) I got the worst feeling watching this. I looked it up. I was like, what does putting a fork in a toaster do? And essentially, it can like short circuit the whole thing. It could shock you to death. But the main thing was like, this could cause a house fire. Mm -hmm. I think that's where like the fire imagery and the the demon clown, the devil clown. Mm -hmm. I'm going to venture a guess to say that they chose a clown over like a devil, like a red devil, because a straight up devil 
uh, with like horns and a tail and everything would have been an even more problematic visual. Well, they did it in all dogs. <laughs> yeah, but like I think they had a little bit more sense or like they had, they had a reason why they didn't do it. for that. Because think about it. A red devil holding a pitchfork fork mm. could have easily done the whole stab stabby. Yeah. Stabby stab. Whoa. But I think they went. Mm-mm. Instead, they went with Pennywise. But still pretty brutal. And why did he have to go run? <laughs> well, TV Tropes has some thoughts on that. Oh, okay. And they basically, I didn't make these notes because I didn't really agree with it, but they said it was like, if you wanted to harm someone or, yeah, harm, we'll go with harm, you wouldn't tell them to run unless it was this like sadistic, maniacal, like pleasure in their fear. Correct. That's what the villains do. The That's villains do that. Classic horror villain. Um, I think, but it's also just a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So like you can't really explain the logic of nightmares other than to say water and forks are no no bueno with a, a toaster. An old toaster. And it was a clown because Pennywise was in the zeitgeist at Maybe, the time. But clowns are just scary. But it's a firefighting clown too, because he also has the hose and the <laughs> I just I don't know. <sighs> Would you like to know who voiced the clown just yeah. for fun? Yeah. Uh Joe Ramped, our no friend way. and writer co-writer no way did the voice of the that's cool run um yeah and i guess also his laughter which couldn't let go of that one my little baby brain heard that yes yeah pretty heavy so the nightmare in the novella was just one line about falling into a bathtub oh god that's it (laughs) um and it's scary enough in its own right Mm -hmm. um but that was the only thing mentioned about the nightmare in the novella and apparently halfway through the filming or the production uh the producer donald kushner thought that the nightmare scene should be cut from the film due to the clown being extremely frightening for younger children yeah obviously he didn't get his way (laughs) and (laughs) what kind of world would we be living in if he had if we had not all seen this as children i don't know he lost uh on two of those fronts he did yes we'll talk about the second one later that's true but to lose that and yeah I, i guess there's also some notes about how The whole thing starts with, the fire starts with the toaster burning toast Mm -hmm. and, you know, all the smoke and everything, which goes back to, like we were saying, that guilt and fear of being responsible for something bad happening. Yes. That is one of my core fears at the heart of me as a person, (laughs) accidentally causing something terrible or messing up. Yeah. Burning the toast, if you will. (laughs) Oh, that's a new euphemism for when we really royally. Yeah. Burning toast, which is something I just that don't want to burn happens the toast. to a lot of toasters, right? It happens. Toasters make mistakes. But like yeah. the thought of that leading to all of this like catastrophic, terrible consequences, uh-huh. catastrophizing that one little s- simple mistake of burning the toast, that's what I've always done. Yeah. And I maybe I do it because toaster did it. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but they basically said toasters would be afraid of things like forks and falling into a bathtub. So that was their... Mm-hmm. That what would a toaster be afraid of? What would a toaster have nightmares about? Well, that's what a toaster yeah. would be afraid of. Like a toaster or like an electronic being tossed into a bathtub while you're in it was like obviously it's 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 an allusion to suicide. Right? Yeah, we mentioned this, one of many uh, in We're Back as well because there was mm-hmm. also a toaster in the water in We're Back. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So like the, this this goes up there with these like it's not totally irrational but like irrational phobias of like quicksand right and like uh falling anvils i think that there's also kind of like a 90s maybe 80s 90s there would be a reference where if somebody you know 
it sounds like a Chandler Bing kind of thing where it's like, okay, well, I'm off to take a bath with the toaster, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I'm done now Absolutely. kind of thing. Um, I Absolutely. feel like I heard You're those right. references all the time. Not so much anymore, mm-hmm. but I definitely heard them. Yeah. No, I think you're right. So It's in the zeitgeist. Yeah. We were thinking a lot about Taking the toasters. Taking a bath the with an electronic. God. Pretty dark, one might say. Pretty dark. You oh said gosh, it. Oh, gosh, y'all. I'm glad this scene made the movie. I think it makes the conclusion possible. It makes the whole like conflict resolution possible. But we'll get there. Okay. I will explain. So you're for it. We know, guys, Christian is for this I am this for scene, this nightmare. Traumatizing me at four years old. <laughs> it's necessary. It was a necessary scene. It had to happen. And then you'll reference the novella and explain why it didn't have to happen. And then I'll be proven wrong. No. But that's okay. I'm okay with nope. being wrong, Kaylin. I'm okay with being wrong. Like I said, no, no. The only thing in the novella was just one sentence. And they took took a lot more entertainment from that, um, <laughs> as Joe Ramped would say. They took it and run with it. Ran with it? Run. So yeah, this is a pretty um, theatrical, poetic transition out of a nightmare into this vicious storm that catches Blanky up in its wind. Yeah. And we need this storm to happen, of course, because Lampy gets the bright idea to recharge the battery using the lightning. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> Moving forward. <laughs> I just have to say, it's no wonder that you and I were both afraid of thunderstorms at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't see this movie. There's so much to be afraid of. You hadn't, but there's so much to be afraid of. I saw Twister. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's enough. More than enough. So this this was like a it's like a bona fide mid act break. They were they were it also fades out and everything. Well, when the blankie was in the tree, they yeah. were also like, maybe he's calling from blankie heaven. Yeah, like he's oh dead God. now. Yes, it's the thing. We think blankie is lost to the elements, if not dead. We think Lampy is dead because the lightning strike shattered his bulb, mm-hmm. and he goes out out like a light. Mm-hmm. But you know the characters are alive; they're fine. And they just continue on their journey with little to no consequence because, uh, yeah, Kirby goes up and saves Blanky. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. They just really kind of needed this whole, like, peril moment to recharge the battery so they could keep going. Right. It all kind of works. I don't know. Mm. More or less. I just judge it really harshly. I'm giving it the benefit. Okay. We'll go (laughs) with it. Like I said, it is what it is. We're moving on. Mm -hmm. So, they move on only to face two of the most troped up tropes of all 20th century children's media. A giant waterfall. There you go. And a pool of quicksand. Bring it on. In the words of Cusco. In the words of Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. She was in the movie, right? Well, Cusco said it in reference to the uh, an actual waterfall. So, so <laughs> when Kirby sees the waterfall, he's so completely terrified of it that he has a nervous breakdown. So he's held everything inside this whole time, even while rescuing Blanky from the high branch. But now he just can't take any more adventure. He's done. I get it. So he panics and almost swallows his own cord, mm-hmm. which is a reference, I guess, to the dangers of swallowing one's own tongue while having a seizure. Maybe. Yeah. Because they say, don't let him swallow his cord. Yeah. Is it like, is it a seizure? Is it a stroke? It feels like a seizure because it feels very um, he's sort of, he's animated. Just, <laughs> well, it's like, it's like a panic attack. That leads to like a seizure that then like mm-hmm. leads to a stroke. Yeah. It's like this full like. Which doesn't help me one bit because all of my anxiety or a lot of my anxiety is health anxiety. Yeah. And has been since my early childhood. I think it's more of a panic attack because they kind of help him walk it off 
if you mm-hmm. will, when they push they do, him yeah. around. They push him around and he takes some laps. Yeah, eventually he comes back. Uh, but also his defensiveness when he's clearly not okay. Yeah. It, it feels so real for like an older elderly person that's like, mm-hmm. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know? And it's like, you're you're not fine. Um, but he did not want to accept help. Yeah, no, totally. I do that. Like, there's nothing worse than like getting hurt and then people trying to like touch you and make I sure know. you're okay. Oh, it's the worst. I just yeah. like, oh my God, it's the, it's the, it's like, um. In a haunting hill house. Yeah. Theo, when she... Yeah, when they're trying to help her, when she falls and hits her head. Mm-hmm. And she's like freaking out. Like, Don't, Don't touch, touch me. me. <laughs> so people say that this moment has left them afraid to let their vacuums uh, run over its own power cable. But he also just voluntarily swallowed the cable in the previous scene. While he rescued Blanky. Yes. Like, I, I get it, but like, I don't get it. I thought it was confusing, personally. Well, they have to cross the cliffs over the waterfall. I think Houdini did this once. Why, if I remember right, he was out of the hospital in no time. Well, that's encouraging. It's like having a gun in a scene. If there's a gun, it has mm. to go off. If you're crossing a cliff over a waterfall, you have to fall. Awful. Yeah. So they fall, and Kirby jumps in to save them after hesitating for a weirdly long time after trying to decide whether or not to do the thing he has to do yes Mm -hmm. well they're like hey we're not dead and then they're like well where's some wood to knock on yeah they say the word dead and death i know so many times they're just they really embrace the theme of time passing and everybody dying yeah whether by your own hand or not we think they everybody fell to their death for Mm -hmm. a really long time they wanted us to make that assumption it's a good 15 20 seconds so right long. yeah like he really takes his time kirby literally thinking that everybody's died mm-hmm. it's a lot yep it's a lot so they survive the waterfall mm-hmm. but they find themselves in a swamp where are we i don't know how many swamps are out there in california but you know what we're gonna go with it i learned a long time ago just <laughs> go with it go with it swamps are scary we need a swamp. Yeah, we know all about swamps. Yep. We live near plenty of them. We've seen a swamp or two. Swamp or three. And I was going to say, at least Kirby's kind of making jokes, right? Once they are saved and everybody's okay from the waterfall, Kirby's mm-hmm. kind of making jokes. There's this, like you said, this levity that kind of kind of helps ease the pain until he's not making jokes anymore. And it mm-hmm. comes up real fast. Yeah. So they're all tethered by Kirby's cable and he falls into a pool of quicksand. Mm-hmm. And when he goes down, they all go down. Yeah. That's what she said. I <laughs> Can you let go? Try to untie yourself. I'm not scared. I hate the feeling that I got as they were all being sucked in because this weird acceptance happens in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. It's out of place. It's strange. I don't know why it happens. I don't know why. It's what I hope I will do the moment I'm going to die. I guess so, yeah. Because there's this... <laughs> I hope I'm not scared. There's this dead acceptance behind everybody's commentary and behind their eyes. In this moment, they... They're not fighting anymore. They go. They're not fighting it. We tried. They say. We've survived enough. This is it. This is it. What the heck? <laughs> I don't know. I felt it too. Again, Radio Blanky says sh- that Blanky's not scared. Radio does a salute with his antenna. Yes, his final broadcast. Oh. It's way heavier, way more existential than it should be for there a kid's would, I movie. I don't understand why. I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. They could have literally done anything else. They could have just been stuck in, in muck. Mud. Yeah. And just unable to move. Right. What are we going to do? Not like going under. What are we going to do? But they'd go under as if it's just like. Done. I see the light. Over. We're going to be okay. (sighs) 
again, I just, they don't pull the punches and I don't understand why. It's, it's just a lot. It's I so heavy. We're, we're both flabbergasted. We can't even spit out any intelligent commentary because this one really, like I said, they all come out of nowhere, but this one really out of total left field makes you feel well, like I, shit. It does. Total shit. Yeah, that's, it does. Uh, we, actually, it concludes all future broadcasting of any sort. We'll sign off now with the suitable tune. But thankfully... Radio is an entertainer at all costs because he sends out his final broadcast, very heavy moment. And the broadcast is heard by Elmo St. Peters, who saves them. I thought I heard a radio. Also voiced by Joe Ramft. Okay, nice. Okay, cool. Um, This guy is such a weird, ultra nerd hillbilly who drives around swamps in his monster truck looking for stray electronics that he can strip for parts and sell in his little part shop of electronic horrors. And I mean, I'm pale. Like, I'm pale. I'm a pale person. This dude is translucent. He's (laughs) He's another color. He's not even white. He's like blue. He's a super nerd. And I love dogs, but his dog is deranged. That dog is ugly. So scary from the moment you see him. And his name is Quadruped. Yeah. (laughs) So dumb. And, And at this point in my notes, as I watched the film... I said, and I quote, did they really want us to believe death was around every corner? Yeah. Because for a while, a long time, I believed them. Me. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be that way. It's This is the, um, out of the uh, frying pan and into the out fire. Out of the frying pan and into the fire and into situation. the molten lava, into the burning pits of hell. <laughs> <laughs> into the fire and brimstone. Yeah. In the human world... Elmo St. Peter's is just a normal dude. He sells usable parts and tries to invent new kinds of useful appliances. We meet a few of his creations in the back room. Um, But to show how sadly normal he actually is, he drinks a diet shake called Flab Away and eats fistfuls of marshmallows. Mm -hmm. Like he's just a normal nerdy guy. Yeah, I guess. He's not a bad dude, but to the sentient electronics... Elmo is a mad scientist Mm -hmm. who removes their vital organs and other body parts to either sell or assemble into monstrous creations. They see pieces of electronics in display cases and hanging from sharp hooks. Mm -hmm. We get our first taste of the horror when a customer asks for a blender motor and Elmo St. Peter's performs surgery on his own blender, removes the motor, and sells it for $5.95. So this guy clearly inspired Sid. From Toy Story. Sid from Toy Story and Al from Toy Story 2. Yes. There you it, go. I mean, they're, it, they're uncannily similar mm-hmm. on all fronts because this this dude is almost a mashup of Al and Sid, right? Because he's yeah. he's the Al character in that Al has his own workshop of stuff and, you know, yeah. has a business doing this thing. He's kind of a bigger guy that drives a truck. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and then it's Sid because of the weird... Frankenstein mm-hmm. work that he's doing with these appliances and, and electronics. The difference being that Sid was also a terror in the human world, not just the toy world. Sure. We don't really yeah. know too much about Elmo in the human world, to be no, fair. not much. No, he reminds me of like a Gacy type, but I don't think he was. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, he has to remind us of a Gacy type. We really because don't know. In, from the perspective that we're watching the film, from the characters that are leading this story, he is. Mm-hmm. He's, he's taking people apart. <laughs> yeah. And selling their organs. <laughs> yeah. 
I will say before we get into the chop shop yeah. proper, can I give you a little bit of a taste of this being kind of where the novella and the film diverge? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let me taste it. <laughs> okay. Taste, taste this. <laughs> so rather than this quicksand moment in the novella, everything kind of comes apart, right? The chair loses a caster. We, we, we're not doing well on our journey. Right. And as they're looking for this caster to try and get back on track, Blanky or the blanket discovers a boat, which the vacuum declares they will use to cross the river. All right. The toaster objects to stealing this boat and says that this makes them no better than pirates who are, quote, the bane of an appliance's existence. Since once an appliance has been spirited away by a pirate, it has no choice but to serve its bidding, just as though it were that appliance's legitimate master. Hmm. Truly, there is no fate, even obsolescence, so terrible as falling into the hands of pirates. This is so Pinocchio. As the toaster continues to argue with the other four appliances who have already boarded the boat, the owner of the boat returns and thinking whoever had placed the appliances in the boat was intending to steal his boat, you know, assuming it's a human, uh -huh. I guess, decides to retaliate by stealing the appliances instead. Wow. So he takes them home across the river to the city dump. And that's the transition. That's the transition. In Whoa. Film. That's wild. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It's, it's very, very similar, but still very different. I like it though. It feels very like children's narrative, mm -hmm. like bridging one thing to the next. Yeah. And man, I don't know what kind of pirate hurt Tom dish but he did not like pirates <laughs> he didn't know jack sparrow <laughs> no by then we just had um pirates stealing like movies yeah pirate pirating in, well, in, that, in that day really more than 90s for us pirate to me the first thing i would think of would be yeah like the anti-piracy the fbi warning FBI are gonna come and get me as i'm watching my vhs tape the number room. of times i was like two hundred and fifty thousand mm -hmm. dollars i can never afford they that. put the fear of god into us but it was always like <laughs> Oh, I hope I don't pirate this movie. Yeah, yeah. I hope I don't. <laughs> by accident. I hope I don't accidentally pirate this movie because <laughs> we had no, no idea, idea what the heck they were talking about. No idea what that means. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. So the characters we meet in this part shop. There was the blender I mentioned. There's a tape recorder, a reel-to-reel -reel with large spinning breasts, a busted TV. A pencil sharpener, desk fan, coffee percolator, and many, many others, including the hanging lamp. Yep. <laughs> yes, Mr. St. Peter's is quite an amusing fellow, isn't he? This hanging lamp probably seems very familiar to a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's a horror animation trope. For those of you who have seen Corpse Bride, it was repurposed for the character of the worm that lives inside the head of the corpse bride herself. Absolutely. This type of character trope is inspired by Dr. Laurie, mm -hmm. the cartoon character of Looney Tunes and Mary Melody's fame. Dr. Laurie was a parody and homage to character actor Peter Laurie. That's right. Who, to paraphrase the Looney Tunes fandom, famously adopted somewhat stereotypically creepy mannerisms for his most iconic, unnerving, and disturbed characters. Mm -hmm. The significance of the reference here in this laboratory of Elmo St. Peter's is that Dr. Laurie always appeared as the mad scientist archetype. He was always diminutive, with either pale or yellow skin, mm -hmm. usually donning his signature white lab coat with bright red mm -hmm. gloves, although his attire would change depending on the situation. You get the feeling he doesn't get out much. Doesn't see much sunshine. Mm -hmm. The fandom describes Dr. Laurie as, quoting, 
a highly disturbed and psychotic little man who enjoys tormenting others and performing insane experiments. Yikes. Insane experiments. <laughs> they also point out that he's self-conscious, depressed, and lonely, and those aspects of his character usually come through in modern in modern versions of this trope as not only madness, but also dark and self-deprecating humor, mm -hmm. which we're not unfamiliar with ourselves. Nope. His first appearance was on May 25th, 1946, in the Merry Melody short, Hair Raising Hair, which was also the debut appearance of one of my favorite cartoon monsters, Gossamer. Whoa. Here we learn that Dr. Laurie created Gossamer in a cartoonish twist on the Frankenstein narrative. Mm-hmm. Trivia fact... Mel Blanc voices all three characters in this episode. Bugs, Dr. Lori, and Gossamer. That's so great. Isn't that cool? That's really cool. He doesn't do it all the time, but a number of people voiced Dr. Lori or the Peter Lori character yeah. for the past like 100 years almost. Just for reference to get a sense of Peter Lori's life, mm -hmm. he was a Hungarian-born American actor. He was born uh, June 26, 1904 wow. in Hungary, and he died in Hollywood on March 23, 1964. Wow. So his career, you know, spanned several, several decades several. in early Hollywood. I imagine we're going to talk about him a few times as we go through our podcasts. Um, oh, for sure. I think there are references to Peter Lorre like all over. All over the place. The pretty dark stuff that we He's watch. just very, very common in horror trope. Ubiquitous. I've only seen two of his movies. One is M, and I just recently watched Stranger on the Third Floor. Yeah. Worth watching. I think of Igor in Frankenstein also. Well... It's that's a, different a different trope, but that's where my yeah. brain takes me. <laughs> but he is similar. He is similar because he's he's the mad scientist archetype. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of connected. So the darkest insinuation is that the hanging lamp has been subjected to so many horrors over time that he's gone mad. Mm -hmm. The others in this part shop have either gone mad from the same exposure or from being operated on themselves. Mm -hmm. The whole thing has this Rocky Horror Picture Show vibe. Everyone eventually does the time warp. Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask if we would categorize this as a villain song. No, it's, it's, it's not considered a villain song. Okay. They are victims themselves. They are. It's true. You're right. They're not the they're villains. They're not even on the same They're scary, par. but they're not. Yeah, they're not the villains themselves. They're only Fair. scary in the way that like mental illness is scary. Like something you don't understand or unfamiliar. Like it shouldn't be. No. But it's something that we aren't familiar with. So it's something that we naturally fear. Yeah. Because again, well, these things are just mirrors that we don't like looking into. These are funhouse mm -hmm. mirrors. We don't like what we see in them because mm -hmm. we look way different. Right. And it's just, we hope. it's unnerving. We hope we look way different. We hope we do. They're there's just kind of a soullessness to this scene in particular, this whole film. They've gone but this cuckoo. scene in particular that, yeah, it rocked me to my absolute mm -hmm. core as a kid because it, they were gone. Mm -hmm. You know, there was nobody home anymore. And that idea was so scary to me that you could lose your, your sense of self, your identity. It's losing and your identity. That's kind of the whole point is that it's being taken from them, put other places. It's the idea of the Frankenstein. It's not... You know, it, it's an amalgamation of other beings. It's not really any one sentient thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not even mental illness in that aspect. It's more of a, it is unnatural. It's something that wasn't mm -hmm. ever meant to exist, but now it does. And these are the consequences of that, right? Yeah. It's like, take if you, if you consider them as human beings, if that's the symbolism here, 
when you dehumanize something, when you debase a human being mm-hmm. and you strip away its identity, yes. whether yes. it's in a, a cult or it's in mm-hmm. Auschwitz yep. or anything, you begin to accept your own loss of humanity. You yeah. begin to give up. Yep. And so the, the difference here between these characters and, and villains is that they're not they're not the ones holding these characters back from escaping. Right. They're just the ones there to tell you we couldn't escape. So guess what? You can't either. You can't either. You're not getting out. And mm-hmm. think of it like these are the toys in Toy Story, mm-hmm. the ones in Sid's house that are all deformed and they look scary. Appearances are deceiving. Right. They look scary, but eventually they help them escape. Yeah. Those toys are all kind of good at heart. They you know? are all good. Right. Man, that little doll head on the spider oh, little body. That's what. That's the immediate that still one that horrifies was in my me. head. Still horrifies me. Uh, but the thing is, the chan- the first chance these characters get, they too escape. Right. There's just, there's a lot to this. There's a lot going Mm -hmm. on here. The visuals of, you know, you talked about him and his experiments. You see him stabbing and cutting and he's using, you know, in reality, screwdrivers and, you know, but you see (laughs) the silhouette of it and it looks as if he's just digging into these bodies and mutilating them. They also use the trick of the shadow on the wall, right? You use shadows to show things that are too disturbing to show Mm -hmm. on screen. Yes. Um, We see this in Ghost Bride. Yeah. Ghost Bride. Mm -hmm. We see this in Pinocchio Mm -hmm. with the donkey transformation. Yes. This, um, it gives you just enough distance to actually put it in the the visual. I think that comes from like the old Hollywood, like Hayes Code or whatever it was that set rules and regulations for what could be on screen. Like, no ultra bad language, no sex, no murder, Mm -hmm. nothing they could actually show. That makes a lot of sense, actually. On screen. So I think they use the shadow trick a lot in old cinema. Mm to convey concepts yeah and so like he's just digging into a a blender and taking out a motor like Mm -hmm. nothing to us but they give it that air of fear and horror and Mm -hmm. the unseen music the unknowable with the music and everything so it makes it a horror you know cliche right in a way it's also kind of interesting commentary or like an interesting reminder that you know something that you're seeing a human being as totally normal Mm -hmm. if you put on the lens or the perspective of another group uh in this case it's you know an appliance granted ascension appliance (laughs) but if you just twist that a little bit and say another group or culture race Mm -hmm. sex anything that's different from you right if you put those those eyeballs in for a second empathy and empathize you can see that the thing that's happening is a complete and total atrocity. Oh, yeah. Um, it's barbaric. It's like the worst thing that could be done. Or in this sense, a monstrosity. Or even a monstrosity. So yeah, it, no, you're it, right. That's a, you know, that's a reach. I'm not going to say it's not a reach, but I do think it's <laughs> I mean, an interesting thing. What are you trying to say? I'm not an appliance. <laughs> you talk to all of your appliances already. We don't have to worry about Christian's no, appliances. He treats them very what well. What were we just talking about recently? I just saw the house painters are finished. My house, like the exterior is all clean and painted and new. Being immersed in this uh, sentient, inanimate world, this universe for a few weeks, Mm -hmm. I feel like my house is happy. It's (laughs) like got a good scrubbing. It's happy to be clean and... Ooh, it's nice. But all of this from, it's not a villain song. (laughs) Right. Not a villain song. However, cue the laughter. Mm -hmm. Cue the gramophone phonograph turntable Mm -hmm. setting down its needle. Striking up what sounds like the organ music from the Haunted Mansion attraction theme. It does, yeah. Before it shifts into its own unique disco vibe. Another similarity to Ferngully with the whole like... Yes. Da-na-na, the tape. Yep. We learned what that was called. I don't remember. Oh, it's a whole like symphony BN 12, 37, yeah, 45. I know. I know. 
This song is called It's a B Movie. And it's full of pop culture references to horror icons like Frankenstein, mm -hmm. Vincent Price, and House of Wax, which I also just watched recently, and it was great. Yeah. It's really just a love song to classic horror cinema, really milking the fear here as, you know, as best as they can. Mm -hmm. As best as they can. <laughs> there are also many horror trope references, like going down into dark cellars, bubbling witches' brews, voodoo, and the scariest one of all, emergency invasive surgery. Oh. A lot of high contrast, deep shadows. There's shadow puppetry yes. on the walls. We got like bats, spiders, creepy claws, a dog with sharp teeth, and a hand holding a knife. Yes. And also at one point, they're thrown into an oven and the door shuts. Hansel and Gretel, anybody? Hansel and Gretel, but also Dish attempting suicide by gas oven. And failing. Yeah. We learned about that in part one. We learned mm -hmm. his whole life story. Mm -hmm. And that is a really rough, not disrespectful, but kind of a well off-color thing to reference. Because I don't know that it comes from the novel. But If they knew about say? it at all, they, it could have just been a funny thing for them. Right. But I don't know. Who knows? The most stomach-turning part of it isn't the obvious attempts to tell audiences that these characters are in a very dangerous, frightening situation. It's the line... That all the appliances sing in harmony. It reminded me of being a kid and realizing the sun was going down. Another night And feeling that sinking feeling in my gut. Oh, yeah. If you have anxiety out there, listener, you know. Mm -hmm. If you were a child with anxiety, particularly. Yep. You know the difference when day shifts to night and the way that it feels in your body? I used to hate dusk. Me too. Um, nothing filled me with more dread and depression than the sun going down. You know, because night was coming and that meant bedtime and that meant darkness and that meant being afraid. Yeah. But then they all beg for reassurances that fate won't harm them, that they're going to be okay in the end. Mm -hmm. And it just has this hollowness that feels way more existential and dreadfully realistic than it really needed to be. Mm -hmm. Because all we are, any of us, is just shouting into the abyss asking, are we going to be okay? Mm -hmm. I hate it. Especially considering these lines immediately follow the line about telling St. Pete you got cold feet. Mm -hmm. As we've mentioned before in the podcast, mostly through folklore, behind the will-o'-wisp and the jack-o'-lanterns, Catholic belief holds that everyone meets St. Peter at the gates of heaven when they die. Mm -hmm. Telling him you got cold feet implies that you were going to let yourself die. But then you got scared and changed your mind. That's pretty dark. And I thought while we're here talking about B-movies, we may never do this again or get this opportunity. Yeah. But I looked into where the like B-movie category comes from. Nowadays, this concept is fairly trivial, but the understanding of what a B-movie is has changed a good bit over time. Mm -hmm. Originally, when film studios held the monopoly on film productions, the B-movie or the B-picture was a low-budget more formulaic companion to the A picture. Mm -hmm. So people would show up for a double bill to see the A film with its A-list actors, but first they'd sit through the opening act, mm -hmm. the B film, yeah. with the B-list 
or the second tier actors. It's funny because it's not in alphabetical order. <laughs> right. And over the decades, as the industry became more saturated with filmmakers across the world, the term B movie was used to describe really any low budget film, mm-hmm. not just those intended to accompany an A film. Right. I'm sure we've all heard that. And it kind of is, it is sort of self explanatory. You would just assume, like we think of A list, like you said, mm-hmm. anybody lower B list, D list actor. Phrases like that are pretty common now. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that it had a literal origin. It had an actual origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And horror films have a long-standing tradition of being considered B-level cinema. Mm-hmm. Just because of the the topics. Right. The content. Hence this cry from the creators of Brave Little Toaster. Mm-hmm. Shining a light on classic horror and decrying that they are not just B-movies. Just like us. Using our flashlights to explore all the darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the mention of Frankenstein in this song is significant. Elmo St. Peter's here resembles Dr. Frankenstein, who pieces together a monstrous creation using many different body parts taken from other corpses. Mm -hmm. St. Peter's does the same thing, but with technology. The Frankenstein novel was horrifying for many, many reasons that I'm sure we will continue to explore in future episodes. But one of the whole points was to display the audacity of man who would dare play God and perform unspeakable acts in his attempts to achieve the unachievable. Mm-hmm. The Frankenstein narrative is timeless and will be reimagined forever as long as humans are allowed to write stories in the artificially intelligent future. But in this context, paralleling Victor Frankenstein with Elmo St. Peter's is a reflection of how Homo sapiens sapiens have always been obsessed with pushing boundaries to achieve the impossible in the spirit of both hubris and madness which are often indistinguishable. Damn, go off. A lot of this lines up with anti-consumerism and planned obsolescence by commenting that we're always creating more and more stuff. I recently watched Transatlantic, Mm -hmm. um, the series on Netflix. I I mean to watch that. It looks really good. It's really, really good. And in the opening scene, the first, like I think, like 15 minutes, they're making a joke about how there's nothing wrong with the hammer But back in the United States, there are like 50 different types of hammers. Mm -hmm. And that show was set in the 1940s. Right. But in this sense, our current Frankenstein's creation is the monstrous amount of waste we create by constantly mass producing cheaply made products in the spirits of convenience and wealth accumulation just because we f***ing can. Mm -hmm. And it's not even cheaply made products. It's planned obsolescence in the sense that a lot of times, oftentimes in the electronics world, which we get to a little bit later in our Brave mm-hmm. Little Toaster story. Cutting edge. They often do intend that our electronics only work for a certain amount of time before they inevitably are obsolete based on the new things that are coming out. They they right. they design your iPhone to die after two or three years or to be less efficient. Yeah, with the software updates, mm-hmm. the power cables. This is all on purpose. This is all planned by industry to make more profit. But what that creates is more stuff in landfills, mm-hmm. uh, more materialism in our culture and our ideology. The worshiping of items. Yeah. It, it all is connected. And I thought a lot about planned obsolescence when I watched this film mm-hmm. and the cancer it is. Woof. And the cancer it causes because of all the chemicals in these products. Yeah. TV Tropes points out that perfectly usable technology winding up in a parts shop is the equivalent of giving up an old dog 
just because you don't want it anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, not that the filmmakers are saying this is the same thing, because it totally isn't. Oh, yeah. Sorry, brave little toaster. We care about our toasters, but uh, yeah. We care more about our animals. (laughs) It's more that in this universe, the sentient appliances would feel the same as a living, breathing animal who learned to love its master before its master decided not to love it in return. To go get a puppy instead. So perhaps this sheds more light on the Narcissus concept with the wilting daffodil. Everyone loved Narcissus, but he didn't love any of them back, and his rejection hurt them. Maybe the filmmakers were just preaching a sermon of love, encouraging audiences to learn to love anything and everything, not just yourself. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, this is the pain you introduce to the universe. These are the consequences of selfishness, a landscape of not only toxic waste, but heartache, depression, death, and suicide. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. And on that note, let's ditch this part shot. Radio is in danger of losing his tubes, so the other appliances stack themselves up to resemble a monstrous creature that frightens Elmo St. Peter's. Into knocking himself unconscious. Everything about this moment lasts longer than it needs to. Even his scream into the reflection. I know. It, he screams know. for forever. <laughs> it's Forever. They they really just take their time with the moments that don't need delays. They really yeah, don't. Yeah, it's so strange, the, the delays that they introduce. So this moment, I think, is one of very few that layer the film, the novel, and the original fairy tale on top of each other. Yeah. So in the novel, they pose as a ghost with the blanket shrouding the toaster uh, perched on top of the vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. And they make ghostly noises to lure. Of course, in the novel, it's not Elmo St. Peter's. It's a pirate instead. Elmo St. Pirate. So they make ghostly noises to lure the pirate out of his shack. And at the instant he looks at the hooded figure, the lamp turns on and the pirate sees his own face reflected in the toaster's chrome side. Mm -hmm. The pirate, upon seeing his corrupted reflection, concludes that this ghost, in Dish's words, is the kind that understands exactly who we are and knows all the wrong things we've done and intends to punish us for them. Oh, wow. And flees in terror. So That's deep. Dish (laughs) was saying, I guess adding another layer to this whole reflection business, yeah. And saying this ghost that's come back is the kind that understands what we've done. Like, you know, the things that only you know. It's a mirror. It's a mirror. Yeah. This ghost knows those things and is mm-hmm. now here to. It's symbolic. Yeah. Right. And I think that meaning is a little more poignant than what we see yeah. in the film. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot more poignant than the fairy tale, too. <laughs> <laughs> I like Dish's words better than this. Sorry, Grim Brothers. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I have my copy of Grimm's fairy tales here. I just wanted to read the moment that this was all inspired by. Um, so they, the animals uh, come to the robber's cottage and they want all the food. So they have to scare all the robbers out of the cottage. And so it says, Then they consulted together how it should be managed so as to get the robbers out of the house. And at last they hit on a plan. The ass was to place his four feet on the windowsill. The dog was to get on the ass's back the cat on top of the dog, and lastly, the cock was to fly up and perch on the cat's head. And when that was done, at a given signal, they all began to perform their music. The ass brayed, the dog barked, the cat mewed, and the cock crowed. Then they burst through into the room, breaking all the panes of glass. The robbers fled at the dreadful sounds, 
They thought it was some goblin and fled to the wood in utmost terror. Mm-hmm. And so they basically create the first version of the stacked, stacked farm animals. Farm animals. Yeah. You see that art yeah. everywhere? <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to find the origin. I think this is the origin. It very well might be. It's just this symbolic thing. I don't know. Well, we comfort, talked about it a coziness? little bit in, in our part one episode. You mentioned that they they basically convinced all passersby that there was a, a, a goblin, a ghost, a being in this cabin. Mm-hmm. And that's how yeah. they were able to stay together yeah. and stay yeah. alive. And it's it's all very similar but very different. <laughs> very different. And I kind of wish they had leaned into it a little bit more in the film from the novel. But again, they only had so much time. Just like we only have so much time with you, listener. <laughs> and speaking of, it's time to move out of the country and into the city. Mm-hmm. We now find out that the master is named Rob and he's going off to college. And of course, in some ironic twist of fate, just as our appliances are getting to the city, Rob says he's going back to the cabin in the country to get some things to take with him to his college dorm. Oh, that's probably Chris. We're going out to the cabin today and pick up like the old lamp and radio and stuff. I can use them at the dorm. Oh, terrific. Hi, Rob. You ready? Yeah. Bye, Mom. Take a sweater. So he goes with Chris, who I'm assuming is his girlfriend. Yes. To show her the place. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that Andy, I mean, Rob and Chris didn't really <laughs> seem to like match the way that they were drawn? Something about them just didn't fit together. I don't know. Rob and Chris look exactly like my friends Christian and Courtney. <laughs> no, I think Christian and Courtney look like they fit. They weren't hand drawn, at <laughs> least by people. So No, they weren't drawn by styles. human beings in, in a rush to get a movie made in like a month. Right. Although I am sorry to say that. Uh, sorry, Courtney, Chris doesn't serve much of a purpose no. other than to be an attractively animated female. Yeah. But I'm going to need you guys to watch this movie and then go as Rob and Chris for Halloween this year. That would be great. Uh, Send us your pictures. Be pretty bussin', as the kids <laughs> say. No cap. Mm. I don't even know what these words mean. Mm. Um, we also learn the cottage was just a summer cabin that the family would visit when Rob was younger. They never actually lived there, mm-hmm. but something happened that kept them from visiting for the past five and a half years, right? Yeah. So since we hear Rob's mom's voice, but there's no mention of a father, my theory is that Rob's dad died. Maybe. And it's just been too hard for them to really go back to a place that's held so many family memories. But I'm speculating. It's never clearly defined. Some people say maybe they just got divorced some people say his dad just you didn't hear him he's still there we don't know he's at work you know i don't know yeah he's at work but it's been more than five years since they've been there so by the way rob's mom is actually voiced by mindy stern cool we never see her you know we just hear her voice which i think is also really funny like a la charlie brown sort of Mm. Um, and a lot of different you know tropes from the time where we would only see half of the parent or something like that latchkey kids but she was also a member of the groundlings Group. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, you might know her from the Austin Powers movies or as Clarnella from How the Grinch Stole Christmas 2000. Oh, Just wow. If you wondered what she, the actress, looked like. <laughs> yeah. Now you're going to think of her as a who. A what? A who from Whoville. A how? Who's on first? A when? Master Rob is voiced by Wayne Katz. Meow. Uh, Wayne was a writer by trade, writing on things like the Flintstone Kids, the Pound Puppies, a pup named Scooby-Doo, the new oh Yogi Bear God. show, Tiny Toon Adventures, the Plucky Duck show, all the way to Pinky and the Brain in the 90s. So many of my favorites. Yeah. He was a writer. 
through and through. Um, but he also got to play Master Rob, which I think is fun. I really think they should have gotten Rob Minkoff, who the character was based on, to voice Rob. Mm-hmm. But alas, they did not. That would have been cool. Chris, uh, the girlfriend that you mentioned, is uh, voiced by Colette Savage. And she didn't really have many other credits herself. Mm-hmm. So probably a friend they called in a favor to at a certain point when they needed it. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Because like you said, and like we keep mentioning, they put this film together with no time whatsoever. Kind of like this podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, editing Christian. You're the best. Yeah, thanks, editing me. Sexy beast. All right, so we're going to cover some ground here. They get to the city and they have to find Rob's apartment. So luckily... Of course, Lampy knows how to read. Perfect. Because he spent he years... He spent so much time reading. Yeah, lighting Rob's books for him while he, while he read in his room. Yeah. So he helps them read, like, uh, yellow pages, basically, in a phone booth. And I really appreciated the Finding Nemo humor about the address with mm-hmm. the 4470 McBean Parkway. Yeah. And it reminded me of the P. Sherman 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. Sure. It got me that. I think I wrote that in my notes, too. I liked it a lot. And that street, by the way, is the same street that CalArts was located on. Of course. I knew there was some relevance, but mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? There's no time. No time. <laughs> and speaking of that, Rob's apartment is the A113, like you yes, said. Yes. We talked about this in part one. If mm-hmm. you know the Pixar A113 reference. And all of the appliances in the apartment are updated versions of the cabin appliances. So they're mm-hmm. all like sleek and cool and And modern. here's where I think of the planned obsolescence. Yes, this is where we get into it. Things today don't last, but the, the washer and dryer that I have right now is older than me. <laughs> if you want a visual, just think of like any like late 80s or 90s sitcoms when like someone had a cool apartment mm-hmm. and everything's all like fake plants and like sleek mm-hmm. edges and like um, aluminum and stainless steel and shit. Yep. It's what they thought modern looked like in the 80s. It's like what they thought the future looked like. Exactly. Which is what the future does look like in cinema. Right. Which is pretty funny. It looks all 70s and 80s. The lamp is so threatening. The computer, so threatening. My stranger danger radar was just <laughs> going crazy at the intro yeah, well, of these characters. These are villains. Yeah. Right. The, um, the part shop characters are not villains. They were victims. These are villains. Yes. To me, the lamp, the purple lamp named Plugsy... Reminded me of Slimer from Ghostbusters. <laughs> nice. The big chunky green guy. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch, but there's like a desktop PC, an entertainment center, a telephone, a modern vacuum, sewing machine. Which um, the sewing machine being gossipy. Holy stereotypes, Batman. Junkyard refugees in this house. What's the world coming to? Oh, I wouldn't sew a single stitch on that ragged little blanket. If you could actually call it a blanket, I'd rather die. Oh, like an old oh it's just horrible and it smells too. Get that thing away from me. Look at it. How could anybody want to do it? Oh, it's this, disgusting. Someone wash that? No, Lord, no. Ugh, I'm nauseous. Um, and there's also a TV that they used to know from the cottage, who's still kicking. Jonathan Benair is the TV, a black and white TV set. Yeah. And an old member of the gang. One of their friends. And this is the TV where they had the the ladies' boobies with the stars on mm-hmm. them that they, they had to, to make that out later. Um, a bikini top. Yeah. So funny. You leave a bunch of 20-something boys animating <laughs> stuff, and that's the kind of thing you end up with, I guess. Which I think is funny, because in the moment, when he like grabs the photos of like evidence of something, and he's like, I don't even want to look at them. And he throws them on the ground, and he like stops and like looks down. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Oh, okay. I, I get it. Yeah. I, I get the joke. Oh, man. And all these characters sing this really horrible 80s style mm. techno synth song yeah. called Cutting Edge. This is really where the film becomes a trippy allegory for like American consumerism and planned yes. obsolescence. Absolutely. 
It's all about how these modern appliances are better than the old, outdated ones.、Mm-hmm. But it takes a dark turn when the appliances basically explain that humans no longer need to travel or go live their lives to the fullest because they can just experience the world from the comfort of their own homes.、Mm-hmm. Kind of a Wally sort of message. And this is nothing like how we live our lives now. Like, there's like no relation. It's not even like close.、No. It's like there's no way almost 35 years later that we're anything like this at Definitely all. Definitely not.、Mm-mm. So, the best part about this. Is the poetic justice of how the modern appliances are now mostly obsolete 80s technology.、Mm-hmm. While people still totally use toasters, lamps, vacuums, you know, heated、yeah. blankets, maybe, and old radios. I kind of wondered if the creators had the foresight to realize that, to say that this is a trend or these things, certain things are trendy. Of course, computers and, and all those things, obviously, we use them all the time every day. But yeah, but it's a new style computer. and the, it's updated. It's updated. It's、Software、not these、updates. computers. Exactly. And I wonder if they realized what they were doing, knowing these things were going to be phased out so quickly. Maybe so. It seemed to be the angle they were playing. I don't know. But a lot of our, our hero appliances are things that are made to last forever.、Mm-hmm. But think about how often we have to update modern tech, like phones and TVs and computers.、Right. Like, Just to keep up with how those providers distribute those services to us.、Mm-hmm. But you know, we're just talking about appliances. Yeah.、Really. We're just talking about the very <laughs> little toaster. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't like this cutting edge song. I don't like it.、Um, no, I don't like it either. <laughs> but I, I do have to admit that its, its message holds up strong against the test of time.、Um, they're singing about how, thanks to them, humans never have to leave the house because we have everything we need at home. Yeah. Now we live in an internet society where we can stream all of our entertainment at home and have all of our wants and needs delivered right to our front doors. And we still applaud technological advances、mm-hmm. because they make our lives more convenient. Right. But if this song from the 80s holds any lasting truths, it's that convenient consumerism is a crude replacement for sentimental substance. Here, here. And we see this reflected in Rob repairing the window AC unit back at the cottage. Healing years of trauma for the AC.、Mm-hmm. So, this gesture of kindness here is such a nice juxtaposition against the modern tech that thinks they're all so cool and sharp, like bullies who have to put you down to feel big. Right. They're insecure at their cores. Definitely. They're all sleek designs and bright colors, but they hold no substance inside. And because they have no heart, these cutting edge appliances toss our heroes out the apartment window and into the dumpster below. Where they are then taken to Ernie's disposal, the junkyard of no return. Oh boy. Seemingly. So, this junkyard is the final tribulation. The appliances find themselves dumped in a junkyard where there's a giant magnet floating around, picking up metal objects to drop on the conveyor belt that leads to the crusher. Yeah. Where everything is crushed and compacted into neat little disposable cubes, perhaps a physical metaphor for how our human bodies are all measured into individual boxes in the end. Ugh. Yikes. I was proud of that. <laughs> and I also have to say, Crusher and the Giant Magnet is a fantastic band name. <laughs> I can see it. The whole place feels toxic with both pollution and utter despair, a veritable hell on earth. For all sentient things inanimate. It's the end of the line, the waiting place where all man made objects come to die. 
But seeing all these piles and piles of American consumerist refuse really brings similar films like Fern Gully into sharp focus. Yes. Well, as they're, you know, accepting this fate, right? They're like, I'm glad the master has such good appliances, Blanky oh, says, God. which breaks my heart because it's like... It's heartbreaking. Blanky is just t like, again, they're all relatively naive. So Blanky mm -hmm. is just taking what's been told with no analysis or any kind of critical thought about it and saying, well, they must be better for a master. So I'm yeah. glad master has them and I'll just go die now. Yeah. Um, that's really sad. <laughs> I'm glad the master has such good appliances. Yeah, couldn't get any more modern. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Is this like kind of self-pitying like well good for him i'm glad he's happy it's so sad and it's even so depressing uh, i keep wanting to call him andy i swear i do even rob's mom <laughs> makes me laugh she's just trying to provide for her kid you know he's going to college and and he's wanting to go and he wants to take these appliances and he's talking about needing a lamp i guess and from the other room she's saying take basically to take hers and he's mm. like well you need a lamp too mom and and from the other room she's yelling i'll buy some candles i won't read i'll go out like <laughs> that's you as a mom that's me as a mom yeah take what you need take it just take it that would totally be me as a mom it sounds like an amy sherman paladino uh, moment <laughs> yes if amy sherman paladino wrote characters that cared that's about a, their children that's a yes. lorelei moment just trying <laughs> it is, to give, yes, there's give rory a, a lamp and she's like rory. what do you mean what are you gonna read that is by? a very lorelei rory moment it is i just liked it i don't know it was funny to me any any moment where i didn't have a total scowl on my face watching this film i wrote down <laughs> well it gets worse from here and this is where all the junkyard cars sing the song worthless yet another sequence that the producer donald kushner wanted to get rid of and it's basically all of them singing their life stories before death inevitably takes them but its fast pace gives it a rushed sense of antici anticipation and yeah. anxiety. Ugh. Like the end is rapidly approaching and there's nothing you can do about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't like Because it. it is rapidly approaching and you can't. <laughs> and one of the cars literally sings. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> Hurt me while I panic. Um, we're going to do a Patreon breakdown of this song. Uh, and get into all the lyrics and all the cars and their histories. Because there's a lot there. I had four pages of notes just about like fan theories and such. And it gets really dark and we don't have time yeah. today. But I think it's so, a great little bonus episode to actually go down deep into one of these songs. Yeah, it's really fun. I think they, they mean a lot to everyone for better or worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. This song is so dark that it's been compared with Hellfire mm -hmm. from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I can see that. Sure. In terms of Disney darkness and all around mm -hmm. fucked upery. Mm -hmm. um, it turns into a song about how death is inevitable. And it doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. One day, you're going to die. I didn't need this movie to tell me that, to be honest with you. No. I had plenty of other things shouting that in my ear. <laughs> and one of the heaviest aspects of it is that vehicles don't usually just wind up in junkyards unless they're completely worthless. So the theories surrounding the details given by these cars run super deep. And TV Tropes draws a lot of parallels to like a nursing home mm -hmm. and a mass graveyard. Absolutely terrible. In this junkyard. Hate to think about it. And there's one particularly Ugh. controversial vehicle, the green pickup truck. And Kushner wanted this scene cut because this pickup truck is committing suicide. Yeah. Pretty heavy stuff. Very heavy. And they say the word worthless nine times. <laughs> and one of those times is when they're all looking down at the small appliances and they all say the line together. Mm -hmm. 
Really driving it home. Really driving it home. Driving it home. <laughs> their cars. They ain't going nowhere. <laughs> and all this time, like you said, Rob's trying to decide what to do about getting things right. for his dorm. Yes, they're they're experiencing two different realities. Rob has this like boundless excitement. He has college in front of him. He has his whole life waiting. And we're seeing <laughs> the opposite end of that spectrum. Oh, I know. The other bookend, which is yeah. the graveyard. All the hopefulness of life and all the despair of death just mishmashed together. Life and death and death and life. A hair between them. <laughs> if you know Elizabeth Town. And Chris suggests that they just go drive around and see what they can find. But TV, the character on the TV, Mm -hmm. is frantically trying to convince him to go to Ernie's disposal by creating a commercial for crazy Ernie's and the Ernie's. Amazing emporium of of total bargain madness. One, again, one of the only sequences I enjoyed in the whole film. And thankfully he succeeds because our hero appliances are in peril. This sure doesn't look like Crazy Earnings' amazing emporium of total bargain madness. The appliances wind up in the hold of the giant magnet and are dropped onto the conveyor belt. Rob spots them and grabs mm-hmm. hold and he's dropped onto the conveyor belt. He would get to safety, but he's trapped under a pile of junk too heavy to lift. Terrifying. I don't know why the magnet wanted to kill them so badly. There's actually a lot it, of- I guess it uh, just wanted to do its job, but like, oh my gosh. There's a lot gosh. of speculation on the internet of like, why that is. I it was about. so like, relentless. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't like, just it, let them go. In reality, he'd be operated by a human, mm-hmm. but in this universe, no human would know about the appliances running around and trying to catch them. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the whole, the whole thing is like- um. Like a Haunting a Hill House type vibe or like a Pennywise the Clown type vibe of like it began to feed on them. And then when they got away, they got away that bothered. it became a personal it, vendetta. Almost like DeSantis trying to destroy <laughs> Disney. Yeah. We just shoehorn that in real quick. That's going to keep happening. That's a personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. Guys, it's not good politics. Pretty much everything he's doing. Yeah. But, but there was a lot of like thought of like um, the magnet essentially, it becomes personal, but it's also more like oh no, I have to do my job or I'm the one that's going to end up on the conveyor belt? Then I'm worthless. Then I'm worthless? Yeah, I guess he's surrounded by enough of that rhetoric that... (laughs) It's all he knows. It just seeped in there to him too. To have to sit and listen to this worthless song for all eternity. That's bad. That's bad. That'd make me go crazy. And we get another appearance from Hexus, so... (laughs) Yeah. Pardon me while I panic? Oh, so to save the master and the other appliances... Toaster jumps into the giant cogs of this massive machine of sentient massacres, bringing it all to a screaming halt. It sacrifices itself. It does. And Toaster is crumpled to death in the process, in one of the most visually traumatizing on-screen deaths Mm -hmm. in children's media history. And there's this, again, not only is there an actual person in danger, we have this long long drawn out moment of peril where the bad thing is happening the bad Mm -hmm. thing is happening the bad thing's gonna happen for a really long time (laughs) but also yeah toaster hesitates for such a long time before they jump wouldn't you it's like make sure you're watching kids make sure you have your eyes on this before it happens but you're having like but put yourself in, in their place to decide to sacrifice yourself oh i'm not saying that toaster was wrong for hesitating but the filmmakers lingered on that moment. Yeah. It it didn't play it I guess here's my thing. If it had been 
a moment that was playing on Toaster's indecision of like, do I, don't I, will I, should I? Mm-hmm. Like the, the fear of Toaster, that's one thing. But they didn't do that. They just waited. And then Toaster jumped. <laughs> I guess you're right. I guess you're I don't right. know. It it just struck me again as one of those just like this took far too long, mm-hmm. far longer than it needed to. Again, just I think rushed rushed production. Yeah. Not being able to really figure out how to do it right. Mm-hmm. I think they did what they thought would be passable. Right. So Jerry Reese decided to move this junkyard sequence from the middle of the story in the novella to the end. Because of, obviously, the junkyard symbolism as a graveyard for appliances. Yeah. But he also wanted a definitive moment that earned Toaster the title of Brave. Mm -hmm. So he had Toaster jump into the gears, obviously, which was not in the the book either. Oh, wow. And it's just interesting to me that Toaster needed to do this action to earn his title. Like, all of the characters have gone through something (laughs) to earn a title of Brave, I suppose. Yeah. Some of them near death themselves as well. Lampy, Blinky, mm-hmm. Kirby. Yeah, they've all know. served their purpose. Yeah, and your purpose is I... just to sacrifice yourself for everyone around you, which is the same just narrative that I already believed. <laughs> it can be it yeah. can be traumatizing when that's fed to you from every angle. Ask me how I know. <laughs> yeah, I could see where, from the creator's standpoint, you want the toaster to earn the title, and it has to be a grand gesture more than all the others. It has to be braver, exactly, to earn the title. But I don't see this gesture as Toaster having or wanting or needing to earn the title of Brave. Um, in most other cases, the moment of death is a cutaway. At most, it's strongly implied. But this movie really digs in, refusing to look away from such an important moment. As we've discussed before, specifically with Courage the Cowardly Dog, Just because something is traumatizing doesn't mean we should look away. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the importance of a lesson learned through a difficult experience is greater and more beautiful than the injured feelings. And in this case, on the surface, the lesson is maybe being willing to sacrifice yourself for someone you love. But I think there are numerous layers beneath the surface level, like letting yourself love something enough that you'd be willing to die for it, Mm -hmm. or choosing love even when it doesn't benefit you. Sure. Or maybe simply that love is worth dying for. I don't know. I don't disagree. But this is where I think Toaster's nightmare really plays a huge part in this plot, like in the narrative. Mm -hmm. I think Toaster's nightmare of being the cause of the master's disappearance, abandonment, death, whatever, is what pushed them to sacrifice their self. Mm -hmm. To not be the thing that caused the master's death but be the thing that prevents it. I relate big time. So I think no nightmare, potentially no rescue. Yeah. It'd be nice if they'd had like flashbacks to the nightmare and like- Yeah, tie those ideas together a little better. That may have Mm -hmm. helped with the whole like toaster really ruminating on this and like thinking, oh my God, what do I do? I think so. Because without that like introduced trauma of losing the master and being the cause of it, I just don't think anybody would have it in themselves to jump to that kind of death. I don't think it had much of anything to do with earning the bravery. You know what I mean? Or like right. trying to prove your worth or your 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 value. That's, I mean, that's nicer. I, I like that better for the whole thing together. Oh, I say nicer. I don't know if it's nicer, but I do relate <laughs> to it a little better. <laughs> Less traumatizing, maybe? Because I don't care about earning the title of brave, but I absolutely am terrified to be the cause of somebody's problem or somebody's suffering. Yeah. Well, we were also raised to believe that 
although they say unconditional love across the board in all these religious you know places, mm-hmm. that love is conditional. Right. It is all contingent on how you act, what mm-hmm. you believe, how mm-hmm. loudly you sing worship. Yeah. And I mean, it's true. Like, I think also because we grew up in the way that we did, a sacrificial love was taught to us as the pinnacle of love. Oh, yeah. Love is sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That is what love is made of. So this kind of made inherent sense on that level, mm-hmm. probably to me, that of course you sacrifice yourself for the one that you love. And it's just all about sacrifice all the time. Mm-hmm. And while I think there is some value in that, and I think there is some truth in that, taking that to the extreme... <laughs> is detrimental to everyone. Yeah. Like, as they say, you can't pour from an empty cup. Like, but then again, my trauma is resurfacing as I watch it and think about it in those terms, saying I would so much rather prevent the death, even if I don't care what happens to me, I would so much rather prevent the death of someone else than be the cause of it Mm -hmm. unintentionally. And if that was Toaster's, like, struggle internally, (laughs) then Toaster just wanted to protect Rob at the end of the day. And I mm-hmm. I get it. That's what I think it is. Um, I think it was the nightmare that made Toaster feel responsible for all, all of this. If nothing else, Toaster decided, we're going to the city. We're going to mm-hmm. find the master. <laughs> like, Toaster was the instigating force that caused them all to leave and go on this journey. So anything bad that happened to anyone, I'm sure... Toaster was also internalizing. They were all on and the And if we're meant belt. to relate to Toaster or see through Toaster's eyes as the lead character, mm-hmm. it meant that as a young child, without even knowing it, I was internalizing that too. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they just all stayed home, which at the end of the film we learn they could have done. It would have been fine. <laughs> it would have been fine. Oh my God, what a message. I... This was probably the origin of my mild to moderate agoraphobia. (laughs) Yeah. Because they didn't have to go anywhere. And if they had just stayed home, none of these terrible things would have happened to anyone. And they still would have been reunited with their master. These are such conflicting messages. Just all over the place. All of it. (laughs) If you don't do this, you're going to regret it. But if you do it, you're going to regret it. And we do the same thing. You know, we make these episodes and we have multiple soapboxes, multiple things to say. Like... Being a human being, there's complexity, there's going to be gray, there's going to be nuance. It's going to be hard to say all the things you want to say yeah. at one time, which is why it's probably a better strategy, especially if you're a filmmaker, to pick a message <laughs> rather than trying to cram in a bunch of different ones. Figure out what you're trying to say. Yeah. Perhaps the main takeaway is to always act in love no matter what, because you never know how much good you might do because of it. I like that. You never know how much good you might do. You never know how much good you might do. I'm okay with that. But of course, Toaster experiences what we know to be a Disney death. Yes. Although this one was quite a literal death mm-hmm. uh, until Before Rob- Before being revived. Yeah. Rob repairs Toaster back to their old healthy self. And the film ends with Rob taking them all off to college with him and Chris. So it feels like a happily ever after, except that we're left with the sad reality that even if these appliances are indefinitely immortal- Rob is not. Mm-mm. So. Yep. We just get to think about that. Let's just leave off on that note. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys. We'll oh. see you next time. <laughs> Pretty much. Would you like to know, just for kicks and giggles, how the novel ends? No, I really do want to know. Please, please. Let's just steer away from this. Okay. Get get me away from this mental okay. state yeah, we, that I'm in. We, oh, man. Tell me what it's happens. Deep, it's a deep pit to come out of. Oh. But in the novel, basically, the appliances are 
greeted by their appliance friends, old and new, where they learned that the master has not returned to the cottage because of his new companion, referred to as the mistress, oh. who has caused them to move their vacations from the cottage, uh, quote, where there is bound to be ragweed and pollen and such, which would exacerbate the mistress's hay fever, to the seaside. <laughs> and further, the master intends to sell the cottage along with the appliances inside. So essentially, the wow. reason we didn't come back is because I got a girlfriend and she has allergies. My God. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's just the thing. Okay. So we've got that portion, right? Yeah. The next afternoon, uh, the appliances have rested. They've had their t- blankies tears have been mended. They're clean. And they listen to a radio program called the Swap Shop, which advertises that the five appliances are available if, quoting, you should have a real and genuine need for all five of these fine appliances since their present owner wants them to be able to stay together for sentimental reasons. Oh, my God. It's the toaster's final plan to help the group stay together. And the first call is an elderly, impoverished ballerina <laughs> who trades five black and white kittens for the five appliances. What? <laughs> What? So this ballerina, no. this elderly ballerina takes in the old appliances yeah. and gives the master and his mistress five kittens. What about her allergies? Although the mistress is allergic to cat fur, she decides to take more antihistamines to keep the cats. That's in the book? Yes. That's in the story? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the five appliances lived and worked happy and fulfilled, serving their dear mistress and enjoying each other's companionship to the end of their days. So the elderly woman for forgo forgoed her kittens forwent forwent her kittens for gosh darn it <laughs> for these appliances and the master's mistress said well i'm not going to take antihistamines cuz you're you have a weird attachment to your toaster and i don't like that but i'll take them for some kittens so i mean kind of get it i guess i would do the same thing <laughs> but not to sell the co- the summer cottage right yeah why the, the cabin that I'm, that is unfortunate i'm trying to live my life to where one day I have a summer cabin to go to. I know. And he's just going to sell it because this mistress doesn't want to take extra antihistamines. Mm -hmm. They can take the cats to the cabin because she's going to be on the meds anyway. I don't know. know. So in a New York Times review from April of 1986, Anna Quinlan said of the novel, like C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles or The Phantom Tollbooth, The Brave Little Toaster is a wonderful book for a certain sort of eccentric adult. You know who you are. Buy it for your children. Read it for yourself. Okay. I mean, I do that, but I buy it for myself and I read it for myself. <laughs> I think I buy it for my future kids. Sure. Okay. You can you can say that. I'll tell that's what I tell the other the moms and the and the people looking at me weird when I'm in the children's book aisles at the mm-hmm. bookstores. And they're just eyeing me like I'm a It's for my nephew. Freaking it's for weirdo. my niece. Yeah, you know what? I have those now. I should yeah. use that instead. Use them. I just I don't just wink at them and say, research. I'm doing research. Oh, yeah. No, can't do that. Wink, wink. I think that the film is true to the book in that they fall into this category as well. The exact same camp. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly for kids, but if you are a kid, good luck. <laughs> That's wild. Sometimes it's thought that the film wasn't released in, in theaters because it failed to find a distributor. But there was a distributor, Socorus Pictures. They took on the distribution rights for the theatrical release and they were going to do screenings. Also noting, by the way, that it was more for college and young adults than children. Hmm. However, Disney, who we know had invested in the production, 
they didn't want competition. Yeah. So they had invested in the video and television rights as well. And they ended up moving their premiere date up on television, which prevented it or would have prevented it from being financially successful in theaters. So hmm. Buzz is yelling about this because he is outraged. Yeah, Buzz, I So get the it. production company that had intended to distribute it withdrew their deal. And then the film premiered, as we said, on Disney Channel in February of 1988. Wow. And then this is when Hyperion started to enter the film and festivals. And like we said, it got some limited airings and then the home video release. But Disney kind of said, no, if we're not going to put it in theaters, you're not either. Yeah. <laughs> or at least it's not going to be successful if you do. Sounds kind of like Disney. Yeah. They uh, wanted <laughs> to keep bit. their monopoly. <laughs> Still do, I'm sure. Yeah, well, they can crush DeSantis if they want to. I'll, I'll support <laughs> No, that's that. totally fine. I support this. So on the whole, I feel like these creators were almost sort of fumbling around in the dark in the 80s in so many of these films that we see because they were exploring the path that had been laid out for them with things like Snow White and Bambi. Mm -hmm. But as they took up the mantle, while they were getting some things right, they were also sometimes hitting the wrong buttons or slightly off emotional cues Yeah, or maybe hitting them too hard. I don't know. I just think it was like a, it was a tall order, you know, like they yeah. really just, they bit off more than they could chew. And I think so, especially in the time they had to do it. They didn't have the resources or enough time. So ambitious. It was ambitious. And I think they just sort of were like, well, we said we were going to do it and we fought for the right to do it. So I mm -hmm. think we kind of have to. So we have to do it. And they did do it. Yeah. <laughs> they made it and it exists. And I do, I think looking at it as an ambitious attempt more so than like a complete film, I mm -hmm. think gives us a little bit of a kinder view of it. And it does also help with the whole idea that it was popular with like art house indie, you know, screenings and, and colleges sure. um, more as like a teaching moment than yeah. a yeah. kid's movie that I should have sat down and watched, you know, in the early 90s. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have been quite as accessible. Yeah, maybe. For younger audiences know. in those days. Yeah. I don't know who's to say, because it did change us. It made us who we are, and that's <laughs> we go back and forth on it all the time. We're glad that it happened, and we also wish that it hadn't. It's a very strange paradox. Yeah. And I will say that this film, I think, kind of left us both trying not to cry, simply because it was an existential black hole, as I described it to you in text right. message after we finished watching it. It really is. It just sucks and sucks and sucks like a Kirby vacuum cleaner <laughs> until there's no soul left. What are you going to do? Suck me to death. That's how I felt after I watched yeah. this film. But I do think, you know, it had its purpose. It served its purpose. Just like an appliance. And uh, I'm glad we have it for, uh, you know, podcast content. So, <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, we do have to shout out one of our uh, recent patrons. That is Bryn. Thank you, Bryn, Thank for being you, a patron Bryn. and being part of our Pretty Dark family. We are so Honestly. grateful for you and all of our other patrons that make it possible to keep you know, digging into this research and putting out this content. Like Christian said, he's got some exciting bonus content related to this episode coming to Patreon or <laughs> some, possibly already there. Some really dumb, idiot, stupid. Don't you want to come see some dumb, stupid stuff? <laughs> I had fun. I had. A, I, I laughed. Fun. I was just cracking myself If you want to hear Christian improv some Grim Brothers. It's fun. I had fun. Look no further than patreon.com slash podcast. You said it. And if you want to find us on social media... You can go to That's Pretty Dark Podcast uh, or send us an email, That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. So. Thank you for diving back into this uh, wild and wonderful and whimsical and nightmare inducing tale with us. More 
adjectives, more adverbs. I tried to fit as many as I could. That's what she (laughs) said, and we're going to leave off of that. I just wanted to say that no AI could have written this movie because it's full of so much existential dread and artificial intelligence doesn't know what that Mm. feels like. Well, haven't you seen that robot that cleans up its own blood? I have seen that, yes. So maybe it could have, who knows? Um... I don't know if it knows what blood means, but anyway, in a similar vein, haha, blood, mm. uh, go read a banned book because banning books is uh, fascism. So It is. Go read a banned book. Yeah. And thanks for listening, guys. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here. We'll see you again soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to That's Pretty Dark. Written and produced by Christian Baxter Mott and Kaylin Andrews. Our music is composed by Jonathan Simmons, and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone.